Good morning, Murray. Hi, Ted's iPhone. Hi. Hi, Arlene. Good morning, Doc. How are you doing today? Hey, very good. How's the weather treating you there in Calgary? Cold. Well, it's it's warming up. It used to be minus 20, and now it's like minus 10. Almost time to barbecue. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> Another few degrees, and you know, and you'll be ready for shorts and t-shirts. Yeah. Let's see here. Shabbat shalom. Yeah. Hi, Laurie. Good to see you. You too. And Shabbat shalom. Hi, Brian and Chris. Good to see you. Shabbat shalom. Shalom to all. Shalom to all. Morning to you. Good morning. I heard that. And let's see here. Let me continue, continue adding people here. Hey, Vern, how are you, brother? Not long. How are you doing? Good, good. And yeah, we have a nice Sabbath coming. Hi, Hillary Jewell. Good to see you. Shabbat Shalom. Hey, Raina, good morning to you. I mean, good afternoon. I know it's probably afternoon where you are now. Yes, 1 p.m. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Hi, Dale. Good to see you. Shabbat shalom to everybody. Shabbat shalom. I love the discussion about the uh, the tree of life and uh, the garment with no seams. Yes. Yes. Raina, how's your eyes? Uh, it's better this week. Thank good. you. Good, good. It's keeping... not hurting. Oh, good. praise Yahweh. Yeah, praise Yahweh yeah. for that. We've been uh, keeping everybody in prayer. Thank you. Yes, yes. We talked about prayer a little bit last night, you know, and, and it was a very interesting thing because, of course, uh, we're looking at James, right? Yaakov, chapter one. Over there. And him talking about, you know, a person who prayer, prays doesn't believe their prayer is a double-minded man, right? Like a person who looks in the mirror and can't remember what he looks like. That's me. I'm, I'm the person who looks in the mirror and doesn't want to remember what I look like. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Get that mirror out of here. I don't want to see it. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I know where you're at. <laughs> you know, James, it's like, it's like when you go to your 50th class reunion, you walk in there and the only thing that's on your mind is who are all these old people? You, know. <laughs> you go to your 50th class reunion and it's a painful thing to do. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Now yeah, your 10th well, or, your, your or even your 20th wasn't too bad. Yeah, you know? by the time you get to your 50th, it's like, okay, you, you people actually made it, huh? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, who's got the walkers and who's still walking around? <laughs> 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 yeah, it's so true. And you know, of course, you know, this is one thing about ministry, and this is something that, that people should think about really in their own life, is that you want to stay as ambulatory as you can yeah. for as long as you can. Yeah, yeah, yes. Because, uh, particularly if you're doing mission work or you're traveling somewhere, you have to be able to walk. I mean, it's that simple. You got to be able to walk. And so, you know, trying to work really kind of on a full-time basis to maintain your ambulatory aspects which means that if you can walk and i'm not talking about running i'm just talking hey, about some walking. places you gotta run 
Yeah, some places you're in, if you're in the wrong area, you know, at the wrong time. <laughs> you got it wrong. <laughs> they have to run. Yeah. But uh, uh but it is good. It's always recording. Good. Yeah, hi, hi, everybody. Shabbat shalom. Yeah, I'm trying to Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Hi. Shabbat Shalom, Dr. P. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Good morning to you. I'm getting Rob in. Must be having a slow, slow uh, iPad that happened in here. Shabbat Shalom, Dr. P. From the Italiano, Angelo. Hey, hey, Angelo. Hey, molto bene. Buongiorno. What you call your pasta? Como te va, senor? Yeah, the, uh, you know, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I love Italy. Italy's got its own charge to it, for sure. And, uh, you know, I think the Italians are a group of people that are kind of lost. It's like, are we really Italian or are we something else? You know? <laughs> oh, you've met Italian. my family then, have you? <laughs> yeah. What kind of Italian, what kind of Italians are we? Uh, well, okay, that, that's kind of a question. And of course, We're Indians. We're from the Wapaho tribe. That's what they called me anyway when I was up in New York. <laughs> well, I'm just sorry to hear that. Sorry to hear that. No, but, you know, it's very interesting because, uh, you know, well, we were we were visiting, uh, of course, our Italian interpreters uh, in uh, northern Italy. And they were telling us about how much the people up the hill uh, can't stand the people down on the coast. You know, they, I mean, they just hate each other, like the Pisans and the Lu and the Lucases, right? Those people from Luca, who are thirty miles away from the people living in Pisa. Oh, those people, those idiots! You know, they, I mean, they just hate each other. It's like, okay, you guys have been living in too close proximity for too long. You know, that's what your problem is. And then, uh, of course, we made the mistake of mentioning pizza. And once you mention pizza, well, this is this is uh, something personal, okay? Oh, pizza. You guys want to talk pizza? So the next thing you know, the argument goes for an hour. And then the question is, so I told them, I said, look, the worst pizza I've ever had was in Genoa. I said, that wasn't even real pizza. And, and uh, Pietro was like, that's not pizza. That's focaccia. That, that's not even real pizza. You can't even count it. It doesn't even, you know. <laughs> All right. And uh, the reason being is that the water, believe it or not, the water makes a huge difference as to the quality of the dough. And so this is one thing that you will find in Italy is that they're very proud of the fresh water that they have in Italy. And, and where, just one brief thing. And, and where I came from in the Hudson Valley of New York, it was on the bottom of the Hudson River. It's all slate. That whole area is like mountain ranges coming together. So the quality of the dough was perfect. It wasn't soft limestones, it's slate, and it makes all the difference. And it had a certain salt content to it naturally. It's very interesting. So the Italians just gravitated to that, like, you know, moths to a flame. You know? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. And, you know, look, there's a lot to be said for New York pizza, too. I'll tell you what, that's pretty good pizza. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I thought it compared, but, but, but of all the pizzas I've ever eaten anywhere in the world, the pizza in Venice was by far of like 100 miles higher than any other pizza I'd ever had. And we got it casually. We didn't even know we were going into a pizza place. It was just a place we were meeting people. We said, and the guy had him by the slice. I said, give me a slice of that. And he handed me this pizza pizza that was like almost two inches thick. And it was double layered. And it was, you know, oven browned. And, uh, oh, my goodness. 
it was London uh, has the worst pizza ever. <laughs> In 1969, I it was terrible. Yeah, oh, I'm making I mean, me hungry. Guys, you you can't use you can't use ketchup as as spaghetti as a pizza sauce. Okay, <laughs> it's like rule that out. Although I have had, I had some, I had some absolutely rotten spaghetti. The worst spaghetti I ever had was up here in Alaska, and somebody had made spaghetti with you know pasta, ketchup, and reindeer sausage. Uh. It, was, it was absolutely <laughs> horrific. I mean, <laughs> I don't think I've ever had anything, any spaghetti ever worse than that. Mm. So anyway, but as my friend said, you know. Uh, he says Italians are either related by blood or by sauce. One of the <laughs> so we're collecting everybody. But anyway, it's a good morning today, and I and I've got to tell you, you know the, you know the world tries to convince us that the evil machinations of the minds of our political leaders are the only things that we need to consider in life. You know, as these group of people, and it's amazing because every day that goes by, we get some new report about what kind of wicked ideas they have for us. Oh, we're going to stop them from eating. We're going to stop them from fishing. We're going to stop them from home. We're going to stop them from this. We're going to stop them from that. Every day that goes by, all they can do is think of more ways to kill everybody that they're supposed to be representing. And I think they think that nobody notices these ideas but, but of course we do and you know and now the difficulty for them is this that you have you have there is one who reckons all things and he is bamboozled by cnn or by any of the mainstream media he isn't bamboozled by them at all and he knows the truth and he has his way he has his way. Now, it's so interesting, you know, that in Romans, Romans, you know, Paul tells us in Romans, look, you guys are going to come down with a diseased mind. Now, Faye Meads, I see that piano back there. Do you play that piano? No, that's a background. Okay, well, listen, I want you to take some lessons. So the next time I ask you, we can hear chopsticks. Oh, I can do that. Okay. All right. All right. So we're getting I'm not on that piano because I it's not real. Oh. Okay. All right. All right. Well, I was enjoying. <laughs> it. I was enjoying it anyway. But I play a little bit. You have a piano program, don't you? Yeah, I do. Yeah, piano from scratch. Yeah, okay. it's for people that you know, for people that who had a little bit of reading. You know, maybe you played French horn or clarinet when you were a kid. Yeah, violin. Or violin. You had some lessons. You learned how to read music a little bit. Not much. You don't have to know how to read because it's really for people who don't read. And it's to learn how to uh, have a facility at the piano where you can basically play whatever you want in in any key at the end of the program. Oh, okay. And it will build a technique. Okay. So, you know, we used to have, right. you know, back when I was a piano, piano uh, student in college, I mean, we had all kinds of technical challenge we'd go through. And of course, I mean, the truth is, is that you know, look, what can I tell you? I mean, you know, I never really had pians, hands for the piano. My hands were too stiff and too slow. And that was just kind of basically it. And so I always had problem with things like trills and this kind of stuff. And uh, so as a result, my playing was always a little bit thick. But it didn't stop me from playing what I wanted to play. 
except some of the big things. And when you're dealing with some of the music, like for instance, you know, the Mount Everest of piano literature is Rachmaninoff's third piano concerto. That is the Mount Everest. It is, I don't, I don't know if you've ever looked at it, but when you look at that third movement, I mean, you know, did they, he, you know, I don't think he saved any space for white paper behind the notes, you know, <laughs> it's just a mass of, you know, black ink. And, uh, but the kind of technique that's required to play it is really huge. But now there's so many pianists to play it. It's like, it's the threshold event. You can't enter into uh, really the, the top tier of pianism unless you can play that piece. Okay. And uh, so there's some other difficult pieces out there for sure. But uh, um, some of the pianists, and there's some real Chinese artists that are just like unbelievable, like Lang Lang is his name. Uh, phenomenal. He actually studied at... Uh, uh, he studied in, in Pennsylvania uh, and he is, but he's really has, you know, an absolutely virtuosic technique. And there's this Georgian gal, uh, uh, Katia Butiashvili, I think her name is. Anyway, she's got a phenomenal technique, but, you know, okay, great. Uh, you know, I have other artists that I really prefer when I hear them play because, you know, it's not about, you know, like when you, when you see, pianists that have this technique that's just like blazing well okay uh but why not just go to uh go to the theater and watch somebody type 150 words a minute you know you know well your fingers are really blazing okay well does that tell you anything it doesn't tell you anything when it comes to music because when it comes to music you're there to communicate you're there to communicate you're there to say something to somebody and that's what is the real issue is, you know, have you crossed the footlights as we used to talk about? And, you know, and when you talk about, for instance, American music is, is not really music because most American orchestras, they play all the notes and they play them all correctly and they play none of the music. And I know that's kind of, uh, that's kind of hard to hear, but they don't, <laughs> they play, uh, like to give you an example, uh, there, you know, I heard a I heard a symphony orchestra playing uh, Rachmaninoff's Third Symphony, and the Third Symphony in the second movement, you have an expression of the Russian soul that is made better than in any other piece of music I've ever heard, and really yeah. the best way to understand the Russian soul is, uh, I'm talking to him. Life is very difficult, mm -hmm. and hope is all but extinguished. Oh look, there's a little light of hope. And you hope for just a minute, and then it's gone. And it's back to hopelessness. Um, and that really kind of explains. Can you? Yeah, hey, David. And that really kind of explains the Russian soul. And so uh, anyway, so here's this piece, and it opens up with this absolutely, you know, this French horn is just doing laying this gold thing, and it's just, and the harp comes in. Very simply stated, right? Just beautiful, peaceful, calm, beautiful, golden, if you will. And then the violin comes in singing these, these uh, arpeggios, which is just weeping of the soul, right? And so I'm listening to this orchestra do this, and I'm waiting for this. 
yeah, da, da, right? And instead I get, you know, I'm like, hey, you know, I'm getting out the tin snips and I'm cutting the strings off your violin if you're going to play it like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, the notes were all correct. You left 100% of the music off the table. 100% you left off the table. Yeah. So the thing is, is that, you know, and this is the whole thing when you talk about any of these kinds of things, you know, and this is one of the things, the beauties of music, because music is really a pure language that Yah has given to us. And it is a language, for instance, instrumental music in particular. With instrumental music, you hear no lyric. There's no words trying to convince you of what's being said. You have only the communication of the music. And the music is telling you something. It's communicating something to you and what it is saying to you in terms of your life reverence is going to mean the same to anyone all over the world you know i mean they played rachmaninoff's third symphony in hong kong they played in sao paulo they played in santiago they played in tokyo they played in new york they played in london they played in berlin they played in rome you know and it conveys of oh, the same beauty is conveyed over and over place to place and it is a language that goes without words and so when people say well we don't need to know music well really you do you do have a responsibility to know what it is and why it is and why it speaks the way it does mm -hmm. now i can tell you when you look at uh david king david he understood very clearly how important music was that's why one of the one of the big uh, courses at the temple was the musicians, the musicians at the temple. And when you read the Psalms, the Psalms were all about singing. They were all about music. And so when you see that, what, what did David know? And why did he know it? And why did this become such an important part? Well, and the answer is, because music reaches the soul. And it, it's kind of like, you know, we used to discuss this like praying in tongues. A lot of people say they, they pray in tongues, not to be heard by other people, but to be able to communicate to Yah in a pure language that is not interrupted with your own speech, with your own politically correct speech, mm -hmm. the vulgarity of the English language. But music is even more pure than that because music is just, you know, and here's the thing. When you look at the rules of music, the rules of music, for instance, if I take a string and I play a note, and then I divide it in half, I'm going to get the octave. That's just a rule of physics. It exists whether or not a human being ever plays a note of music, ever. That rule exists. And so you have something in creation that is Yah's creation gave it to us to beautify our world and when we talk about beautification of the world doesn't that music beautify your world doesn't it beautify your world i mean sometimes music can be very ugly but beautiful music beautifies your world all right uh reina did you want to say something this morning my sister just um wanted to bring to the to the family, it, it, it's a song that is sung in the synagogue. Nobody knows where it came from. I've mentioned this before, the Eitz Hayim. Hmm. 
and this translation, it, it's a tree of life for those who hold fast to it. And those who uphold it are happy. Its ways are pleasant and all its paths are peaceful. Return us to you, Yah, so that we shall return. Renew our days as of old. Yeah, amen. Yeah, that's a beautiful, it's a beautiful prayer. You know, when I, I was thinking about it last night, I was just going to throw this out to you guys. We know that the Torah, Moshe's Torah in particular, sets out to us uh, cursing and blessing. It sets out good and evil, moral premises. And so is not the knowledge of the Torah, the study of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so when you see this distinguishment between the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, which is Mashiach, we see that for those who are attempting to obtain heaven by violence, I'm going to do all of the things that are laid out on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, doing only the good things. You still don't obtain heaven. You still don't obtain the, the kingdom of heaven because the kingdom of heaven is through the tree of life. And when Mashiach said, you know, Ani hagefen atak hanetzerim, I am the vine, you are the branches. You are the branches. And he's telling us that he is the tree of life. This is the stem of Jesse, right? Isaiah 11, 1. It's the stem of Jesse. This is the vine that is the tree of life. And it's a very interesting thing because it is a completion of the Old Testament. You know, some people say the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. And we see that the these two evolve into one another. But it's not that there was no tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden. That tree was in the garden, and it was there by Yah's design that it would be there. And the tree of life was also there. And so these things have been provided to us as a, a mechanism by which we can understand the kingdom. And the kingdom, you know, where is the kingdom, right? The kingdom is within where is the kingdom the kingdom is within and because the kingdom is within the holy place is also within therefore when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place the holy place is the kingdom within you the abomination of desolation is something that you have taken into the kingdom it's an abomination to yah and it makes and it makes desolate it makes desolate. Yeah. Now, Brooke Jasper, Jasper comes out and says, Moose's Tooth has great pizza in Alaska. This is true. Moose's Tooth does have a great pizza. we got some great pizza places out here in the Valley, too. Like Cadillac Cafe. They make a great pizza, too. Yeah. But anyway. Dr. Pooh, can we add music to this uh, Shabbat meetings at, at some time? <laughs> yeah, you know, I am going to do I that. Play What's that? I play a song. Uh, yeah, song. yeah. What have you got? Oh, Ruach Hakodesh. Ah, imagine that. Okay. I'm, I'm are you going to turn your camera, James? Are you going to turn your camera yeah. on? I I don't know how to do this stuff. 
I turned it to the speaking and I just turned it over there. There, there it How's is. That? Okay, that's good. Oh, you got me in the car. Okay, I'm ready. Okay, we're ready. So, Ruach HaKodesh. Uh, James, you're cutting out. We're not hearing you, buddy. James, your your mic is not picking up your guitar or your voice. Doc, I think every yeah, I think everybody has to mute, Doc. I think everybody must mute. Oh, okay. All right. Well, then I'll mute. Okay. You guys can sing along. <laughs> Am I playing too loud? Good. James, you've cut out on us again, brother. So, so I think it's the settings, and I haven't figured it out yet in Zoom. I don't know how that works, but Ezra has figured it out because he's the first person I've ever heard to blow a shofar, and it actually comes through on Zoom. But uh, it's the it's the microphone combination, Zoom combination, and the settings in Zoom is what the problem is because it doesn't want to take up loud noises in the background. It only takes the it wants to block it out. So that's my opinion. Yeah, so you're getting something. Something is is cutting you out, James. Otherwise, we'd love to hear it. We'd love to hear it, brother. Okay, well, we're gonna have to pick it up at another date. But thank you, thank you for the offering, and uh, and, and I do want to. Uh, uh, we do want to hear you. But we got to figure out how to do it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Doctor P. Uh, I love being a part of this. Yeah, hello. No, it's, it's good uh, to have it's good to have a guitar a guitarist and a singer with us. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. He's given me quite a few songs. Uh, yeah, hallelujah. Yeah, if you're Rock getting your inspiration, man, let's praise you for that. Praise you for the inspiration. Absolutely. Okay. All right, Doug. Doug Fassett. What do we got going on? Turn it off. Hey Doug, you there? Um, hey yeah, Doug, I'm, I'm here. It's just my um, it wouldn't mute unmute with the uh, space bar, so I had to uh, try to get the mouse over it. But uh, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Uh, I was uh, really curious uh, from your Thursday night um, discussion about the uh, the parting of the uh, garments and all that casting lots and so i looked it up in the aramaic and um the one thing that uh if they were rolling dice of course we would have expected it to be uh uh in the aramaic pure or purim yeah but it's not it's uh 
Pei Samak Aleph, which is um, shows up in uh, Daniel as uh, the um, part of the hand that uh, points out. And um, so I got to investigating and and it shows up all of those times and uh, since uh, it was part of a hand if you're in uh, in a dispute remember when we were kids you know you'd be out and you'd find something and you'd, your a friend would be with you and they you'd both find it together I want that I want that but you know rather than fight for it what do you do Rock, paper, scissors. Rock, paper, scissors, yeah. Right. Casting hand. So do you think this is how they did it with rock, paper, scissors? I think that's more likely because it's it generally indicates a portion, a part of something. And every time I've seen it, the, the, uh, the root word is pesamic. And um, that is... Um, in Strong's, it's it's a part of the hand. Well, this is it's time it shows up, but of course, it's it's a lot more than that in the Aramaic. But, but this, uh, that's kind of what I thought it thought it was. It seemed to seem to look like that. But but take a look at this because when you look at Joseph's robe, mm -hmm. was called a keteret pas or keteret pasim. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this this pasim, same kind of deal, you know, the the pay samic. The idea is that the robe went all the way to his hands. Mm -hmm. That's what the when it said the keteret pasim, the robe went. This is why it's very clear that Joseph's robe. We they call it a robe of many colors, and it may have been many colors, but that robe w was woven all the way to his hands. He had a long sleeve garment. That's what it comes down to. We had a long sleeve garment, and, uh, and it's very interesting that this that this was what they were doing there in uh, in casting lots for the Sheok's robe was the same term that was used, you know, pasa. And mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, again, it gives us we don't have hard evidence that the Sheok's robe had sleeves. We don't have that. Although I got some very interesting comments on the on the video they've been talking about. Well. It's possible to do a seamless robe on a loom with no problem. That a loom could do it with no problem. Well, that's it's very interesting. But the robe, see, I find the robe of Mashiach, you know, the, the robe of Joseph, Joseph's coat is very prophetic as to Mashiach because they covered it in the in the blood of a lamb. And the robe, you know, the Mashiach's robe when they were getting ready to cast lots for it, it was absolutely covered in blood. And so, you know, you had this, this same idea and the robe covered with blood given to Yaakov. Yaakov recognizes it as Joseph's quote unquote coat is Keteret Rasim, Pasim rather, the long sleeved garment. And he recognizes it and it's given to Yasharel and to Yasharel's grief. And here we also see that this robe is going to be given and I don't know if it's given to Rome's grief or whoever's grief, but it's very prophetic symbolism in Joseph's robe. 
And there's also something, and I mean, I have to, I'm curious about this, and I don't know, maybe you guys have got some opinion about this. But in reading back through Genesis 49, the promise given to Joseph is uh, really kind of extraordinary. You know, the promise given to him is that he's that there's going to be a king out of Joseph. And I don't, and I'm not quite sure that I understand. Uh, I'm not quite sure that I understand what it is that he's saying. I mean, let me just read this to you here. So with Joseph, it says, uh, this is 49.22. Yosef is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well, whose branches run over the wall. The archers have sorely grieved him and shot at him and hated him. But his bow abode in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty Elohim of Yaakov. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Yasharel. Right? Okay, so the hands of the mighty Elohim of Yaakov, from thence is the shepherd, the stone of Yasharel, even by the Elohim of your father who shall help you, and by El Shaddai who shall bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessing of the deep that lies under, blessing of the breasts and of the womb. The blessing of your father have prevailed above the blessing of my progenitors to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Yosef and on the crown of the head of him that was separate from his brother. From his brother. Ties into the two-stick prophecy too? Yeah, I mean, it goes to the two-stick prophecy of Ezekiel 37. And I think there's, there's, you know, you have this now. It's quite interesting because, you know, in my research shows that of the house of Joseph, and we're not talking about Ephraim and Manasseh because they were distinct. They were a distinct migration. But the house of Joseph, the other children that Joseph had, that that tribe did in fact migrate. And I think that is the Welsh people. I think the Welsh people are the tribe of Joseph. And it's very interesting that the Welsh were so successful against really all of the comers, the Romans, the French, and so on and so forth, because they had one instrument of warfare that was greater than all their enemies, which was the longbow. They had the longbow. And so with the longbow, they were capable of shooting 200 plus yards the French had the crossbow, more accurate, but was only effective for 50 yards. So you see many of these movies that you see about medieval fighting, you'll see a whole row of archers standing back on a hill, and the command is given launch, you know, and 100 guys shoot their arrows, and it comes down as a absolutely destructive force on the opposing army. And this was the longbow. So I think in one, in one respect, we have that, but in terms of the shepherd, the stone of Yasharel, it's found in this prophecy concerning Yosef, the, the, the stone of Yasharel, the shepherd, the stone of Yasharel. But it does say that the stone comes from Yahweh Elohim. So, uh, you know, as I read that again, I don't think that, that it infers that the shepherd will come out of Joseph. But it's interesting that, you know, in the in the Jewish world, they keep talking about the Ben David, Ben David, right? The Mashiach, the Ben David. And yet Mashiach corrects them and says, why do you keep talking about the Ben David when 
it is written that, uh, you know, that uh, my Elohim said to my Adonai, who is his Adonai if it was his son, right? And so you have this criticism of Mashiach talking about the Ben David being, well, that's probably not accurate. That's probably not accurate, even though Mashiach was definitely related on both sides of his family to David. He was an heir to that. Anyway, these are I think these are all interesting things that we find in the scripture. And I just wanted to run that uh, Genesis. Um, one other thing, Dr. Pigeon, is uh, if you think about Pesach, is that the hand withheld? Yeah, 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 that's right. When you talk about Pesach, yeah. And it's very interesting because when we, again, when you look at this Pesach in terms of the uh, the Tedushah that's going to be there, found in there, you know, one of the interesting things about the Kaf is that the Kaf is uh, the open hand. And so we see, for instance, in the term divorce in the Hebrew begins with the closed hand, the Yod, followed by the Kaf. And that the closed hand, which was closed over your marriage, opens to let go. And that's kind of the symbology, if you will, the symbology of uh, divorce in the Hebrew language. The closed hand which held you together opens to let you go. And um, and so in Pesach, we see also the, the uh, kaf at the end. Uh, or is it a het at the end? Uh, yeah, so pas and then het, right? Het. Yeah. And so here we see, or yeah, the hand is, uh, the hand is withheld hand is withheld and so yeah so once again uh, a fascinating fascinating point and again when you look at uh joseph's robe right the keteret pasim uh is this also the robe of many hands right the robe of many hands that his hands would reach out to you know the 70 nations that were known at that time so there's a lot of inference, a lot. Of, and then, of course, to go from the robe of many hands, the Pasim, to the Pasak, to the Pesach, right? There's definitely a correlation there. And then to have the robe of Mashiach taken by hands, taken by usage of the hands. Yeah, a very it's fascinating stuff, the way it all kind of correlates. And I suppose that if we spend more time looking at that, we'll come to an even greater conclusion. But that robe to me. Yes. Hey, hey, Randall. I'm sorry. I'm just trying to wait till you to finish what you were saying. That's the, um, when I'm reading 24, uh, Genesis 49, um, I'm thinking, you know, the uh, bow of his, the bow abode in his strength and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands. I'm thinking the, the arms were his two sons. Oh, yeah. And that's and Abraham. Yeah. And then, you know, when it says strong by the hands of the mighty Elohim of Yahweh, from this is the sh is the shepherd, the stone of Yashrael, which is talking that from from Yahweh will come the Mashiach. That's kind of how I'm looking at it. From Yaakov will come Mashiach. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good translation, Randall. I think that does uh you know, it's a little bit obscure, but I think it does show that. I think that's what the plain language of that phrase tells us. That's what it tells us. That the shepherd in the stone of Yasharel comes from Yaakov. The Elohim of Yaakov through Yaakov. 
right? But remember, Joseph is of Yaakov too, right? Right. But, okay. you know, I'm just saying, you know, Yehuda is also of Yaakov. Oh, and yeah. For, yeah, from Yaakov will come the the, the stone because um, Mishiach is the, is the cornerstone of the, of the temple. Yeah, he is the rock, not Peter. Yeah. I know a lot of people think Peter was, but no. Not the rock. You know, I mean, you know, anyway, that's that is definitely a Roman push. But okay, so um Angelo. Yes, I wanted to um make a comment about the divine imprint on music. I'm a musician as well. And briefly also I wanted to share um uh, a song with the community also that I wrote Shabbat Shalom was a piece of music in 2019, but just tying the words in now after coming through a six year, five, six year walk in this. And so I just want to offer it as a gift, but that's down the line. I'll share that with you another time. Um, it's interesting. The, when you think of a scale that say you're, if you're on the piano and so left hand, right hand, um, just the fundamental of music, you're going seven whole notes to an eighth octave, which is the same note. You look at the you look at the uh, story of the reconciliation in the Moedim, and so what do you have? Seven, and then you get to the great eighth day. And when you're looking at that at the end of the thousand years, really that begins, if you will, well, comes another week, here comes the second week, if you will. In other words, he's got stuff in store throughout eternity. One note, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eighth note, octave, boom. You take the 22 letters. You have 11 notes in a scale with sharps and flats leading up, go from the tonic leading to that, two sets of that. It's just interesting to me. There seems to be an imprint on this. And, and when you have, um, how do you memorize things easy as a child? You sing. It's like, you know, rabbis will teach singing. And it just imprints instantaneously. It feels like creation was sung into existence. You still feel the reverberation of the strings vibrating throughout all creation is still singing praise. The birds in the morning. Now, don't know, miss it. They're, they're praising every morning. It's incredible. You know? Now, Angelo, what you're saying there is something very true. And somebody reminded me of this today earlier. And this is one of the things that I find is kind of dangerous in the Christian church. The average theology of the average Christian is predicated upon the praise and worship songs they know or the hymns they know and what they were taught in Sunday school. Not what, when you ask the average Christian, hey, what did the pastor teach at the sermon today? I got no idea. I don't remember. I was, I thought it was a pretty good sermon, but I don't have the slightest concept of what he was talking about. And I don't remember a word of it, right? But what they do remember is what the Sunday school teacher taught them about Noah's Ark or about Samson or about the Good Samaritan, whatever the Sunday school teacher is capable of teaching. And who vets the Sunday school teacher? It's the most important job in the church. But who vets the Sunday school teacher to make sure the Sunday school teacher is teaching accurate doctrine? Right? That's a question. And then also in the worship team, particularly when you get into uh, Protestant churches where the worship team has license to do whatever they want to do, they're singing songs that may or may not be doctrinally correct. You know, like, for instance, Paul Gober, I love his music, but he sings a song, Who is like him, the lion and the lamb, seated on the throne, right? Okay, well, is the lion and the lamb what's seated on the throne? Yeah, right. That's one so, question. 
And then everybody hears the song, and then they're absolutely amazed when they read in Isaiah that the wolf shall lie down with the lamb, right? Exactly. And there, that, that had to be changed because I'm expecting to see the lion lie down with the lamb. And the reason why is because the doctrine is ingested in the mind via the worship song. So this is very, very true. I know when my kids were growing up, you know, they learned the capitals of all 50 states by singing a song, right? They had a song that they sang. And it's true. As soon as you teach somebody, they remember the words and they remember the discussion point forever and ever. And it, it, it's a correction. It's the wolf that lays down with the lamb, Isaiah. Yeah, the wolf, the wolf lies down with the lamb, not the lion lie down with the lamb. And but like I say, people look at that, they say, well, Mandela effect is responsible for changing that. Well, no, it's not the Mandela effect. That's what's always been written there. But your worship songs convinced you that it was the lion and the lamb. And, you know, and so you have many doctrinal statements that are being made. Like, for instance, Jesus is the name above all names. Now, that is the conviction that's given to us in Philippians 2.11. But Paul in Romans 10, 4, says Yahweh is the name above all names. And Isaiah, in Isaiah 45, says Yahweh is the name above all names. Now, there is a reconciliation to that in Philippians 2, 11, that Yahweh is Yahusha to the glory of Elohim. But is it true that Jesus is the only name that a person should ever know? Not according to Paul, not according to Isaiah. And so, but, you know, you get a worship team homes in on that. And then pretty soon there is no discussion, but Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And you're, you know, you're, you're not, you're failing to recognize the aspect of all of creation. You're failing to recognize the trueness of the one Yahweh. Yeah, it's a misunderstanding too. When you think of the word name, we're thinking in English terms authority, character, this one you call upon. How do you call upon him? You must go through the Son. It's already saying that everything comes out of the Father and everything through the Son, for the Son. So it's already there. It's showing our Elohim, this Achad, this Achad oneness, right? But when they're getting into these debates, they're arguing about nothing because it's just everybody's just, they're missing the whole point of the whole thing to begin with. And, and yeah. the name Yahweh is found in the name Yahusha. It's right. It's in the name of the Father. I mean, it's he's the name of the Father is in him. And somebody pointed out this, rightfully so, that the reason the scribes and the Pharisees were so upset with Yahushua is because the Iyahu was in his name. That was in his name. It's like, no, you don't, don't, you don't use that name. You can't get close to that name. Even though we find out that as soon as you get away from the, the Maccabean culture, the Hasmonean dogma, as soon as you get away from that dogma, all of the lost tribes of Yasharel use the name Yah openly. In fact, when when we when we first discovered that, when we first realized that Lord wasn't the name, that Yahweh was the name, as soon as we found that, we found the lost tribes of Israel. It was just like that. They made themselves obvious. They've been using the name forever. They never respected the prohibition that was implanted by the house of Esau. They never respected that. And as a consequence, they speak the name all over the world. We have tribes here in the states, Iowa, the state of Iowa. That's Yahweh right there. Yahweh, yeah. Yahweh, right? I mean, you know, it's so clear. I met some people out in Oklahoma, indigenous, 
And they were talking about their ancient stories of how they turned their back on their great spirit. And they were and they called out to Yah. They're calling out and they actually do the Haya Shoraya. They're, they're actually saying that and they're they're pleading with him, pleading with him. Exactly what's going on with the tribes. And that's right. exactly, and that's why that's why we were able to find so many of the tribes. And so as a consequence, we can see that the religions, if you will, the Abrahamic religions have been a uh, construct to do a number of things. One is to keep you away from Yah himself, to keep you away from him, so prohibit you from using the name or give you a different name, a different extrapolation that prevents you from actually communing with the, with the creator, even though he said, declare my name, publish my name, call upon my name, deliver, you know, and those who are called by my name will be delivered. You know, that stuff is prohibited. We're going to start with that. We'll start by prohibiting your personal relationship with him. And then everything else becomes our controlling you, whether it's Muhammad controlling you, whether it's the Pope controlling you, or whether it's a rabbi controlling you. But it's some person on earth controlling you rather than you being in an interface with your creator. And, you know, and when we look at it now, we can see that by knowing his name and knowing who he is, that we do have the things that are taught in the gospel. We have a direct access to the throne. We have direct access to the throne. We have a direct interface to him. There's no man, no saint, no guardian, no angel between us and Yah. There's no one there. It's just us. Because we are his children, he is our Elohim. Thank you very much. I appreciate you sharing that. Who was the brother that mentioned the thing about the hand instead of maybe it wasn't dice? Who was that brother? Yeah, fast. yeah, it's interesting. Just as a little side note, there's an old Italian came as in the Romans, a uh, 3,000 year old version of it, Mora. It's a finger game, slowing the fingers. And when one person has five fingers, the other person has five, it's guessing to see who will throw out two through 10. And so it's a combination of the two. They use that over decision-making, gambling, possession of property. It was called throwing of the fingers. It's called mora. It's actually a 3,000-year-old game, and it was certainly practiced throughout Rome. Absolutely. It's crazy. I don't know. There it, is. there it is, Angelo. So between you and Doug, you guys may have determined exactly how it was. Oh, no. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> That's how they probably cast lots for that garment. It was just that very same way that you just discussed. But it's a solid game. I'm telling you, you ever get in the middle of one of these games, you get your head knocked off, you walk in the middle. These people are they're, it's serious business, and they play tournaments of this stuff, man. It's an ancient game. But it makes decisions. There's been decisions over battles made that they couldn't decide. There's decisions made over property. Uh, so that's what made me think of that. But it's called Mora, as in M-O-R-R-A. Mora. Mora. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, interesting revelation. Fantastic. Okay, thanks, Angelo. Stacy, how are you, brother? Good. How you doing, brother? Good. I just want to go back to uh, your opening statement. And out of the mouth of two witnesses, let every word be established. I wanted to be the second witness. So you were talking about the abomination of desolation. What they teach in the Christian church is that the temple will be built and set up and all that. But as we well know, the we are the temple, as you said earlier. And the abomination of desolation has been set up in those that have taken the snake bite already inside of them. But they still have hope for, as I believe, through doing deliverance, um, it is the Babylonian kingdom that is set up inside of them 
that I've come across um, when dealing with that, dealing yeah, with Mar Marduk, Nimrod, the Babylonian kingdom itself, you know, that manifests fully and come forward. But as long as the, I believe it's the 1P36 gene deletion hasn't been complete in the person that's taken the snake bite, they can still repent. But I mean, a lot of them won't, but you know, I just want to give a little hope that they can still repent. Yeah, hallelujah, Stacy. I mean, such great words, brother. And I appreciate you bringing that up because I do think this was the, this is one form of the abomination that causes desolation. But they know mm -hmm. that are working for the beast system, and you know they're very soon to release the beast system. The beast system is just about to be upon us now, really in its entirety, the full blown dragon, if you will. And as they do that, this is their thing of choice. And so they're going back to the table to come back at us with yet another snake bite. Mm -hmm. This time they want to make it mandatory. This time they want to make it, they want to make you so fearful by having something that is really quite deadly as compared to COVID, which was not deadly. Mm -hmm. I mean, something that's quite deadly and then making this thing mandatory and doing all the things that they practiced in 2021, banning you from society, shutting down your business, calling you non-essential, uh, you know, all of these kinds of things and they did the dry run back then and now the, the wet run is coming and either way we look at this abomination that causes desolation in the holy place in the holy place now similarly we can see the same thing about the prophecy of uh the antichrist right mm -hmm. that he sets himself up in the temple of yah proclaiming that he is yah but what is the temple of yah it's in his own heart. It's the kingdom in his own heart where he is exalting himself above Yah and proclaiming himself to in his own heart. And you know, this is something very interesting too. When I look at the passage, you know, when uh, John Barr and Drew Bowles and I were talking about this on Tuesday, we were talking about, well, uh, be, not, be ye not deceived. For many shall come in my name saying, I am anointed, right? The word there is Christos in the Greek, but what it means is anointed. Many will come in my name. Uh, I'm a follower of Jesus, right? So they think that that was his name. And I am anointed. And I am anointed. I'm anointed to lead you. I'm anointed to prophesy to you. I'm anointed to do this. I'm anointed to do that. And they're coming in his name and claiming they are anointed. And this, I think, is a, a little bit, you know, when, when you have, you know, saying, I am the Christ, well, that's one way of putting it. But if you understand the verb, if you understand the word is a verb and not a noun, then it's many will come in my name saying, I am anointed. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but Stacey, I mean, on, on your deliverance ministry, I think this is an important thing. You know, the end of Joel. Mm hmm says that Yah can cleanse the blood that he has not cleansed. Mm -hmm. And for those who have taken the snake bite, but who are repentant in their heart, Yah can cleanse your blood and he can cleanse it from all things, including the nanobots, including the spike protein, including all those things that have been contained in the snake bite. And it was very interesting because, you know, before Dr. Artis came out and showed that gain of function, was obtained by using 10 different snake venoms. That's how they obtained gain of function in that in that jab, according mm -hmm. to Dr. Artis. 
I found it very interesting because I had been calling it the snake bite for almost a year by the time his research came out to show that, in fact, it was venom that had been included in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. Appreciate Can I just, Dr. P, could I just ask Stacy a quick question before? Yeah, sure, Eric. Go ahead. Okay, Stacy, would you mind to just repeat that little one little sentence you said there about the type of gene and the activation? Because I'd like to research that. Oh, I believe it's called the 1P36 gene deletion. And that's yeah. part of what gets deleted. That's what connects us to uh, okay. the spiritual connection to the most high. In okay. Our brain. And so, Thank you. yeah, once you have the ones with the 144,000, which is the original blood, like Dr. P taught the 72,000 from the mother and 72,000 from the father, the double helix. Once you get that triple helix, you unplug from the 144,000 and now you're plugged into the 216,000, which is the third strand. Right. Okay. Yes. I have seen something on that. Yes. I was just curious if that was it. Okay. Thank you so much, Stacey. Yes, ma'am. Dr. P. Now, in case other people aren't familiar with that, this was, uh, what was it? Watson and Crick, I think were the names of the two mm -hmm. guys that developed the, the, the science behind the double helix. And they had initially published 72,000 genes descending, 72,000 genes ascending in the double helix, which gives you 144,000, which is confirmed in Revelation. The triple helix, which would be the mRNA, which the Florida Surgeon General, by the way, the, Florgen, the Surgeon General in Florida has come out and said that these mRNA jabs are antichrist. That's what he's called them. And, uh, and he said that they have found tens of thousands of particles of DNA inside every jab. So you're being injected with DNA. And he said, what's the, what, what did the FDA look at that? Tell you anything about it? Not a word, right? And so the mRNA component, in order for RNA to work, it has to have the same number of genes to duplicate, to replicate the cell. And it does replicate the cell because it creates a spiked protein in every cell after the injection comes in. Every cell thereafter has the spike protein. And so you're looking at 216,000. Of course, 216,000 is the product of multiplying six times 60 times 600. And, you know, in Revelation uh, 13, 18, it says, calculate the number of the beast. Calculate, not just identify, but calculate the number of the beast, which means you're either going to add, subtract, multiply, or divide. And when you multiply it, it comes, when you're calculating it, it comes out to 216,000. So the triple helix appears to be the number of the beast. And I just wanted to come back and say this to everybody so everybody knows, look, if you've, if you've taken a jab and you're worried about this thing and you have a heart of repentance, the fact that you have a heart of repentance is something that Yah immediately understands and knows. The fact that it concerns you is something that Yah immediately knows. And as a consequence, he has the capability of healing you entirely. You have to trust in that. You have to believe in that. And you have to seek it. And Yah will heal you. But, uh, but to ignore it and to say, ah, well, I'm not going to worry about that. Well, it could be salvation changing. Chris McIntyre. Hey, brother. Shalom, Doc, and shalom to everybody. Um, great to see you. 
You too. You you must be shedding right now, Chris. You in load shedding right now? Yeah, yeah. We. I'm gonna. I've got a torch in front of me. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so um, I just want to pick up on one or two things that we've said before, and I think um, it's important to realize that Hasatan is not one entity. It's not this or that. It is everything that exalts itself against the name of the other. Yeah. And um, we tend to lose track or we tend to lose um, the greater picture of this um, deception that we're fighting by only focusing on one specific entity. Um, but it is actually all the entities that are anti-Mashiach. So we've, we've got to keep that in mind, I think, uh, when we talk about anything that exalts itself against the name of Yah. Now, a few weeks ago, we talked about, well, I said the iron, which is uh, the 16th letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and 1 plus seven, 6 equals 7, which is the G. And um, Stacy was talking about the Kundalini, which goes up the spine, but we must remember that um, that masonry is a sex cult. That's why you've got the G on the apron in front of the private parts, and you have the Kundalini going up your spine to your pituitary gland, which is the iron, right? The eye. Okay, it's in the shape of the eye, the all-seeing eye. And uh, we know all those other things that these people do um, as far as um, the propriety uh, uh, gland and, and, and all the abominations that, that come from that. But it's not only um, roped into this entity of masonry. It is, it is roped into everything that is of Hasatan. So when we talk about the gods of uh, Greece or the gods of Rome, which are exactly the same entities, just maybe different names, we, um, like we see actually in Revelation 9 with uh, Apollyon and Apollos, it's the same entity, right? But it's just a different name. Um, we are, we, it's the worship or the falling into um, the fallen angel worship. They still want to be worshipped about Yah. And um, this is where the name of Yahweh settled in your heart becomes so important because as we have said and as you have pointed out to us throughout all the years, once you get the name, you you tend to find all these other things that relate to the way that one should live in, which helps us in this path of salvation that we are so seeking. Um, and it is a seeking, and it is, as, uh, as you've said, a, a doing word. It's a verb. We, um, we work towards this end. And I think, you know, we, we have to be... When, when I see that book of Dan and how he was so easily ensnared 
by two things, it says. It's lying and anger. And these two things caused him to fall away from Yah. And it says in that book that lying and anger will actually, uh, Yah will depart from the man or from the heart of the man. And um, so, and then, and then the Ruachoth of Baal takes over. So, you know, we, even when we get angry, must be very, very careful not to fall into this trap because we tend to become righteous in our anger and we start to lie. And then things like wars and rumors of wars happen because we are now justifying our anger. And it's a human justification. And then we're actually worshipping yeah, uh, Baal. Sorry. We're worshipping Baal. And, um, and so when, when the New Testament tells us that uh, in Hebrews that we must be careful of the evil that so easily ensnares us, it, it, is, it is really a wake-up call that anything that drives you away from the peace and the love and the, of Yah, because Yahusha is love, and that's where we have to be rooted in. Um, that drives us away from Yah's protection and salvation. And I think uh, something that, that all of us must, must think upon. Yeah, and it's not just it, in salvation, Chris, but it's also the beauty of, of Yah and himself. You know, it's, it's, it's also inspiration. It's also uh, direction. Uh, you know, the, the direction that comes from Shalom is really quite distinct from the direction that comes from anger, right? Amen. Also, Amen. And I think this is something that that I've kind of stumbled on this week too, which is that, you know, so whenever adverse things happen in your life, whenever you find yourself doing things that you really didn't want to do because you're acting out of anger, or you're acting out of whatever, that keep in mind that Yah also has a handle on that too. And he's trying to show you something. He's trying to make sure that you obtain a lesson from it. Then you yes. have to ask yourself the question, what is Yah doing in this, in this event? What is Yah doing here? And, you know, for me, I mean, like, this is one of the things that James was saying, that Ruach has inspired him greatly in his music. And this is really outstanding because I'll tell you, when inspiration dries up, it dries up. It goes away. That's it. But if the Ruach is still talking to you and still inspiring you to write music and to sing, you absolutely have to do that. You have to take advantage of it while the Ruach is there saying, I'm going to, I'm going to bless you with inspiration. And it's the same thing with, with other thoughts and ideas <clears throat> and your motivation in life. And if as you know, the discipline in mind is to ask yourself the question, what is Yah doing in this thing? What's Yah doing here? And then when we, when we find the answer, we'll find out that Yah is doing what Paul says he's going to do. He converts whatever bad is happening to you to your life into good. And he makes it happen Amen. to you for something that is going to be something that is going to be life-bringing, life-giving, life-sustaining, life-changing, and life more abundantly, right? I mean, I agree with you, Chris. I mean, it's, it's a very good word, a very good word.
that uh, and now you, when you talk about the book and you're talking about from the testimony of the 12 patriarchs so sure. that's correct yes yeah that's correct oh, yeah okay. it's such an inspiration to read those story those those testimonies because it really um you know the the, the hasatan hasn't changed you know he 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 will attack us on every level that he has already attacked man throughout time and um you know it's 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 just to be aware um of this attack right uh, and and of the deception because if it is so easy to be deceived as what the word tells us that the whole world will be deceived by their sorceries well then we've got to understand that um that we've got to know the truth first and um and and by knowing the truth we see the deception yeah, yeah. yeah i agree can i you. make a comment yeah sure Raina. it is partaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that's that yeah. the difference the dichotomy between the two trees between yahusha and the um, the government of Hasatan, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Yeah, hmm. it really is. And you can see that, for instance, uh, you know, when, you, when you're experiencing road rage when you're driving, which, as you know, Raina, happens a lot in Florida, right? I'm right about this. But you know, when you're experiencing road rage, that is, you know, you, the, the road rage immediately triggers you into the government of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You're asking yourself, okay, what can I get away with? You know, what's what's what do the laws say here about what I can do, right? Because you're no longer asking yourself, what does Yah want me to do? You're asking yourself, yeah. what are the parameters on this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And I think that's, that's a very good point, yeah. Yeah. And I also think, Doc, you know, uh, by removing Torah and putting in law, um, people have uh, a misconception then of law, right? I mean, we, 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 we think that it's Roman law, or we think it's the law of the land. Um, and then obviously, the verse that talks about the governments, and we've got to obey the governments instead of those that are over our soul. Um, once again, it, it just it, it, it detracts from the truth and it adds a slight lie and uh you know we we these are the things that we've just got to be aware of so that um when yah say when yahusha says you know uh, bless those that curse you when yahusha says um you know the, all those all those lovely things that he says that we don't do necessarily all the time <laughs> um we, we, we've, we've got to be very aware of that because it's so easy that we miss this mark. And then we fall into a self-justification issue, which eventually turns into, I can bomb that place because it's righteous anger. And yeah. I think... Um, I, I see what you're saying, Chris. And I mean, you know, when I think about the dynamic in South Africa, for instance, there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, on one hand, there are... Uh, people that who believe that there will always be animosity between the Boers and the Zulus, right? There will always be animosity there. 
but that's not my experience. That's not what I see in the heart of the of the Zulus. Even though there, of course, there's animosity at some level. You know, when you when you have people chanting "Kill the Boers, kill the farmer," uh, well, that's a pretty that's you know a pretty animated statement. But on the other hand, I see a, a heart in the Zulus that they really want to do the best they can. They want to mm. get is a heart in inside the Zulus to say, you know, okay. We, you know, we fought to to tear down apartheid. Now we want to do the best we can, and mm. uh, you know, and and, and I'm and I'm going to just have to tell you, I'm very very proud of the of the legal team that came out of South Africa to confront the genocide mm. in Gaza. I'm very proud of those guys, you know, and they're bringing uh, the efficacy of South Africa to the table. I think most people have have no understanding of how. Um, uh, let's see what's the word I'm looking for. How uh, 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 fluent the South Africa yeah. is in managing the common law. Uh, yeah. so, you know, the courts in South Africa are really quite astute, and the law firms there are on a par with any law firm anywhere in the world. And so, the arguments that were made at, at, to the International Criminal Court of Justice were extremely good arguments. And it was an extremely persuasive case, and the evidence was, you know, insurmountable. It was, it was so, mm. and so I, you know, so on. So I see, and and the fact that South Africa would come out and say that's apartheid, right? South African lawyers would come out and say that's apartheid, right? That's genocide. That's an extremely big deal because it gives you an idea that when you're talking about maintaining a unified country in South Africa. Do the, does the Zulu leadership have a heart to do that? And, you know, when we were doing the conferences there in, uh, in you know, in Centurion, we saw, you know, I had a Zulu fellow come up to me and say, you know, well, we need to translate this separate into Zulu, you know, mm. and his, that was his point of view. And, you know, and I know that if we don't, if we don't seek after uh, uh, giving the word to the Zulus in a comprehensive way, well then, who's going? Who fills the gap? You know, which doctor, mm. right? Satanists. Yeah. You know, they fill the yeah. gap, and and you see what happens. And so, I think this is a. I think this word you're giving to us here today, Chris, is a very good word. And we do have to look at this point of view and say, look, in this idea that there, there used to be a saying in the United States, only good Indian, dead Indian, right? This yeah. was part of the part of the genocidal move that was dominated the 19th century. In this country and with no understanding about the fact that they had a different concept about what property was and that uh they didn't want us to completely destroy their way of life which we did anyway you know yeah and now yeah, i think we've got it all over the world i think you know all over the world we've got this problem that um we think that we can come in with our roman thinking and just take over right <laughs> it's uh it's it's quite shocking it's uh, and it's very condescending, and um, we we've got to we've although although people might be in your in your um, modern way of thinking, they might be um, uh, backward if you like to use that term. Uh, they have probably a lot of them have a better way of understanding the um, the will of Yah. Than, uh, than the Roman system is. Um, that's just a thought. 
I, I just want to also add one thing, Doc. There, there, there is somebody in this chat that's writing horrible messages, uh, you know, direct messages to some people that that want to give their point of view, me included. Um, you know, this is a, this is a platform for um, for the children of Yah. We've really got to try and uh, be accommodating to all. And I know sometimes I'm very mouthy and I talk too much, but you know, forgive me for that. Um, we, we've we've got to we've got to love one another. And um, there are so many viewpoints that come to uh, to this table um, that it's it, we can't not listen to those that are talking because there's there's so much good that comes out of those, these meetings, you know. So I just wanted to say that, you know, just get it off, um, get it out there, you know. We've got to love one. Amen. Amen. And love conquers a lot of ills, right? I mean, it does. Okay, so before we continue, I want to go ahead and say a prayer for us, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna take a few more comments before we get to the Torah portion. Okay, but uh, but let me say a prayer for us because we've talked a little bit long and we've done so without the covering of prayer. So let's let's begin in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you today and say Shabbat Shalom, Father, for giving us such a wonderful day and giving us a day of rest and giving us a rhythm of life that has us resting on the seventh day. We thank you for that, Father. We also thank you for our fellowship here that we can join together from all over the world and be able to spend time with each other. I know for some people it's quite late. For some people it's quite early. And we're so thankful that everyone is here and and, and can uh, partake of your word and what you have for us today. We're thankful that you have given us your instruction in the Torah. And we hope to look to that today and be able to read that and go through it with great understanding. That you would show us the things that you want us to see here today. Bless us today, Father, in accordance with your good measure, in accordance with your good will, that we might be your children, that we might say to you, Hallelujah, in the name of Yahusha, HaMashiach. Amen. 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 Okay, thank you, brothers and sisters. Thanks for thanks for uh, being with me now. Okay, Steve Hall. Amen, amen. Uh, may I blow the shofar? Yeah, well, as for sure, if you're here to blow the show far, yes, let's hear you blow the show. I'm glad to see you here, brother. You must have gotten up early. Oh, me too. <laughs> me too. <laughs> me too. <laughs> Just got up earlier. <laughs> shalom. Shalom, shalom. Thank you, Ezra. Thank you, brother. Really appreciate that. Okay. All right. Thanks. Okay. Steve Hall. Yes, sir. Good morning. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Good morning to you. I have a quick question, then you can get to your uh, service. Uh, my brother says we no longer have to keep the feast days because the temple's destroyed and you can no longer make the sacrifices. Do you have any curriculum to that I can dispute that with? Uh, and you see me somewhere where I can get a hold of you sometime during the week. And well, I think your brother's got a good point. I mean, there there is no temple per se for animal sacrifice. 
However, the Gospels, the Gospels are very clear that Mashiach says what? I will tear down this, you can tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Remember him saying that? Yes, sir. And he was crucified for saying that. And he did, in fact, do that. So the third temple, if you will, and rebuilt, and it was rebuilt uh, following his death and resurrection. He rebuilt the temple. And with his resurrection, there is a temple. Now, so we know that there is a temple. There is no Jewish temple, but there most assuredly is a temple in the faith. And we are that temple. The temple is within us. We are the stones of that temple. So stones made without hands. So now the question is, all right, do we do the feast or do we do the animal sacrifices? I've done, I have done a study on the animal sacrifices about how the animal sacrifices were never really intended as animal sacrifices. Now, the Pesach lamb was specifically instructed to be slaughtered, but that's not a sacrifice. The Pesach lamb is not a sacrifice because the Pesach lamb even though you see the rabbis practicing this business, we're going to slaughter all the lambs on Pesach on the day of preparation. That's not what the Torah said. The Torah says, you shall slaughter a lamb in your house, and every household shall slaughter its own lamb. Okay, now, all of that is fine up until you get to the death of Mashiach, because with Mashiach, the lamb of Elohim was slaughtered and with the lamb of Elohim slaughtered, that is the end of the animal sacrifice. There is no more animal sacrifice. There is no more blood that will cover your sin for any reason whatsoever. The only blood that's going to cover your sin is the, sin of, is the blood of Mashiach, and that was shed one time and for all. And when he said it is finished, that's exactly what he meant. All the animal sacrifice system was finished right there. It is finished. It's done. There is no more animal sacrifice system after that because his blood, which was intended in Leviticus 17.11, was shed. Now, when you go back and you look at these offerings that is oftentimes construed as an animal sacrifice, the most common one is what's called the Zabak. And the Zabak is a burnt offering. But when you look at Zabak, the very first time it appears in Scripture, Yaakov says, Yaakov called his friends, to a Zabok, and they had the burnt offering, and they ate, quote, the bread thereof. They didn't eat the meat thereof. They ate the bread thereof, because that, that particular smoke offering was, in fact, a grain offering, not a meat offering. That's the original Zabok, the first time Zabok appears. Now, the next kind of sacrifice is called the Ola, and the Ola is from the word Allah, which is oftentimes construed as Aliyah. So, for instance, if you move to Israel, they call it making Aliyah. You're moving up to Israel, making Aliyah. But Aliyah is an ascending smoke offering. And it comes from the word Allah, but it's construed by the Masoretes as Ola. And essentially what that smoke offering is, it's in the smoke. It's not in the animal. It's in the smoke. So, you know, you're not talking about, uh, you're not talking about animal sacrifice in these issues. Okay. And if you read Jeremiah 721, Jeremiah 721, if 
you want to go up there and sacrifice a bull, go sacrifice a bull, eat the flesh thereof. But I never commanded you to do these things when I brought you out of Egypt. Instead, I said, obey my voice. I will be your Elohim and you will be my people. And so the animal sacrifice system was a system that was given by Yah to Moshe to govern a group of people that had Egypt in their bone marrow. And part of that, you know, if you recall, when Moshe went up to the Mount to get the Ten Commandments, he came back down and they had a golden calf created. And when you see images of that golden calf, it was a golden calf with horns and it had the sun disc between its horns. It was very clear they were going back to worshiping the idols of Egypt, which included this personification of animals. Uh, an owl person, half owl, half person, half falcon, half person, half jackal, half person, half lion, half person, half bull, half person. And this is why Yah said, okay, you tell them, you want to worship the bull, sacrifice the bull. You want to worship the lamb, sacrifice the lamb. You want to worship the goat, sacrifice the goat. And th so this was all part of Yah's plan to get the animal worship, this animal idolatry they had going on in Egypt out of them. It didn't work. Ultimately, they all died in the desert. It didn't work for them. It, it was very difficult to get that out of them. They all died in the desert because they couldn't, they couldn't get the Egypt out of them. But Yah never intended for animal sacrifice. If you look at the Ten Commandments, there's no command that says sacrifice anything. There's no command that says that. So Jeremiah 7.21 tells you that the sacrifices are were, you know, are not part and parcel of it. So when you understand that what took place is there's a passage in Hosea 2 that talks about sacrifice the bull of our lips sacrifice the bull of our lips and so this is something else too that we're talking about when you're talking about animal sacrifice you're talking about fundamentally from a spiritual point of view prayer prayer okay so what you see is you see that once we arrive at the new testament you see that we go from this idea of a lamb being sacrificed and the blood putting over your doorpost of dipping the hyssop in the blood of the lamb. This becomes, you become the hyssop and you're dipped. He doesn't does exactly what the Christ, what Christianity does. What's that, Ariel? Oh, sorry. I didn't realize, I, I didn't, sorry. I didn't realize I didn't mute. I got you. And so, so when you look at this, when you talk about baptism, see a lot of people try to say baptism is a mikvah. But I don't believe it is. I think back to baptism is the tabal. You are the hyssop. You're being dipped in the blood of the lamb. And so because, so baptism replaces this idea of dipping the hyssop in the blood and striking that over your doorpost. You're dipped in the water. And the water is a part and parcel of this from 1 John 5, 7. Right? There are three in heaven right, which is the Father, the Word, and the Spirit, and they are one, it says, they are echad, and there are three on earth, which is the water, the blood, and the Spirit, and they agree as one, which tells you that when you're baptized in the Ruach, you have the baptism of the water and the blood, 
when you're baptized in water, you have the baptism of the blood and the Ruach. So this baptism in Mashiach says, repent and be baptized. That's what he says, repent and be baptized. So the Can I ask you this? Sure, go ahead. Can you baptize yourself? How are you baptized? You can baptize yourself, actually. And it's okay to baptize yourself because the idea that somebody is baptizing you and putting you down backwards so you're dependent upon them to lift you up is kind of an, an inherent dependence upon the person who baptized you. That my my walk is only going to be, you know, is only going to be capable if the person who baptized me is still there to pick me up out of the water. And that's not true at all. You know, your baptism, you know, but you need to have a full immersion baptism. And it really does help to have somebody pray over you and to lay hands on you during the baptism that you have both the baptism of, of immersion in water and the baptism of the Ruach HaKodesh. So to say that the feast days are over, I think is an incorrect uh, assumption. And the reason I say that is because of this. These, some of these feasts are, are what are, they're called hogs, hogs, C-H-A-T, hogs. And these feasts are also known as high sabbaths so yah says guard my shabbat and he's talking about all of these he's not just talking about the seventh day shabbat he's also talking about the feast high to guard we're called to guard those now you say people say well all that stuff ended well let me ask you this did mashiach keep the pesach yes yeah, there wouldn't have been any Last Supper if he hadn't kept the pace. Right. Right? Did Mashiach keep the Feast of Tabernacles? Yes, he did. He was up for the Feast of Tabernacles. So you see that and Mashiach keep the first Shabbat. Yes, he did, which means he kept Shabbat. So you can see, and did the Holy Spirit keep Shabbat? Well, the Holy Spirit came on everybody like tongues of fire on Shabbat. So you have some very clear indication in the New Testament that these feast days were kept. You know, you have you have Mashiach's being the, the sacrifice of Pesach and all of that that goes with it, the unleavened bread, the sinless man, the first fruits of the resurrection, which Paul talks about. The sacrifice. Why if all that hadn't been set in motion and been rehearsed, then the sacrifice of the Messiah wouldn't really been in place like it was. Yeah, right? You could have done it any time. You could have done it any time of the year. But it wasn't done any time of the year. It was specifically done here at, you know, at going into Matzah. It was specifically done on the Pesach. So this is, you know, all of this stuff, when you look at this, so you realize that the Pesach and the sacrifice, okay, that is the spring feast. So you say, well, we're not going to recognize that? Well, okay, then, uh, you know, I guess celebrate the, the death and resurrection of Mashiach in February, or make it arbitrary, do it in June, right? Do it around the 4th of July, right? That's That has not been the practice of the New Testament church ever. They have, didn't Shaul say there was a, a a shadow of good things to come? Yeah, a shadow. Something like that? Yeah, well, of course, I mean, but this is the new moons and the Shabbat, all of those right. things. Right, right. But... Uh, but let me finish this, because then you, you say, okay, we got that. Now, what about the Middle Feast, Shavuot? Shavuot has also been recognized in the New Testament church forever. They call it Pentecost, but it's been recognized forever. 
as the found as the founding of the church when the Ruach HaKodesh came upon right. the apostles and gave them the courage to step out and be who they needed to be. So, so that feast is set in stone. It's obvious that that's going to be kept. And then when you get to uh, Sukkot, and when you get to, so I guess the beef is whether or not we're going to celebrate Yom Teruah, Yom Kippur, and then Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. I think this is where the beef is. Well, those feasts we don't need to keep. Well, you know, actually, the Feast of Atonement is a very critical feast that goes to, that's the date, for instance, when the Jubilee year is proclaimed, right? And it's also a date of reconciliation. And when you look at atonement, there's something really big in, in atonement. And this is what we discovered just a couple of weeks back, which is that the practice inside of the community was that they would take two goats. They would select two goats, not one. There would be two goats. One would have a red ribbon tied around it and the other would not. And the goat that did not have the red ribbon would be sacrificed. And the one with the red ribbon would be sent into the wilderness. Now go back and look at the twins that were in Tamar's womb. Tamar, the, you know, the, the mother of the children of Judah. And she gives birth to two children, Peretz and Zerak. And Zerak is marked with a red ribbon. The midwives put a red ribbon around his wrist. And his hand came out first, and then that hand with, with, was withdrawn, and Peretz came out. And the midwife said, your breach be upon you. Well, the breach was upon Peretz, because from Peretz would come the Lamb of Elohim to be sacrificed. So this is why Mashiach is in the line of Peretz and not in the line of Zerach. And Zerach was cast into the wilderness. He had the red ribbon around his hand was cast into the wilderness. So this is very important stuff. Now, when you see that, you see this whole justification of history, if you will, concerning the prophecy of Judah. And why would you ignore that if, if you're a believer in, in, the, uh, in the scripture? Why would you ignore that date? You wouldn't. And to the same extent that the Pesach has meaning, to the same extent that matzah and the first fruits has meaning, <laughs> Oh, has meaning for Pentecost. So Yom Teruah, <coughs> blowing of the trumpet. Why? And and this is something that you that you can ask your ask your brother and say, Hey, look, when you read it, Luke four, when you read in Luke four, Mashiach went into the desert and fasted for forty days. Well, what forty days were though? That was the month of Elul leading up to Yom Kippur. And you can you can read it in the text. You have to understand it, but you can read it. He after he came back from the forty days in the desert, he went to the synagogue as was his custom on Shabbat. He went to the synagogue, and he picked up the scroll to read the passage in Isaiah that said, "This is the acceptable year of Yahweh." He was proclaiming a jubilee year when he did that, and he and if he proclaimed a jubilee year, he had to have done it on Yom Kippur, because that's what the Torah calls for, the proclaiming of the Jubilee year on Yom Kippur. So this gives you an indication that Mashiach's preparation was not just the 10 days of awe that you see with Yom Teruah, because what's the trumpet blast in Yom Teruah? It's telling you that the Day of Atonement is coming up when you're going to have to reconcile your wickedness with Yah, 
in your own heart and you're going to have to purify yourself and you're going to have to make a, you're going to have to do a self audit here 10 days from now. And you need to start. And here's the trumpet blast telling you, if you don't do it, you know, you're going to be cast out of this congregation. And so you, you have the trumpet blast coming up and then you are called to purify yourself, to reconcile yourself on Yom Kippur, which is what Mashiach did. Only Mashiach did it the whole 40 days. Then five days later, that's the birthday of Mashiach because the word the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. So the Christian church wants to practice that for 45 minutes on December 25th in, in honor of the revival of the sun. But the birth of Mashiach actually happened when the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. And as a result, the last great day, Shemini Atzerat, was the day of his circumcision which is the Simcha Torah, the joy of the Torah. And we see that all of these things now equate to and are cast uh, abroad against the most important historical facts in the New Testament. Not in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we see that the life of Mashiach is laid out over those feast days. So why should we practice those? Well, I don't know. Let's, let's don't do that. Let's practice St. Patrick's Day Fourth of July, Valentine's Day, Halloween, Christmas, Easter, and uh, maybe we'll do President's Day, and maybe we'll do uh, the running of the horses at uh, Churchill Downs. You know, those are all festivals that are in Scripture. Uh, no, but you, but you see, and this is one of the one of the great criticisms of the Christian Church. Christians are willing to practice every feast and every holiday except those in the Bible. Didn't he say they were an everlasting covenant throughout your generations? Absolutely. And they're his feasts. They don't belong to the Jews. Right. His feasts. They don't belong to the Jews. They're, they're the feasts of Yah. And there are Jewish feasts, like Purim is a Jewish feast, right? And, you know, uh, Hanukkah is a Maccabean feast. But when you're talking about the, the feast of Yah, Leviticus 23 makes it very clear they're his feast days. And so we are observant. And this is very difficult because people say, oh, are you guys Jewish? No, we're not Jewish. We're just observing the scripture. We're Sabbath keepers. Uh, you know, we're kosher food eaters, keeping the, keeping the feast days as best we can, but doing it without Jewish tradition, doing it without animal sacrifices, doing it in accord with scripture as best we can. And for, for a lot of us, it's a new work. But for a lot of people, for instance, that came out of the Worldwide Church of God, they practiced all these feast days. Am I right about this, Islama? Yes, you are. I come out of the Worldwide Church of God. That's how I got started in the Sabbath. Yeah, yeah. So there But you they didn't know the meaning of it. It was just more of a something that we do, that they done, but uh, the meaning of it was not really revealed to them, I don't believe. Because yeah. once Herbert died, a lot of them fell away. Oh, you bet. They was, the church fell away. The whole church fell away. Yeah, right, right. But it doesn't change the fact that the true faith does require these observance. And yes. the beauty of it is, again, the reason why we do it is because Yah gives us a natural rhythm to life. And the natural, just as you sleep, you know, as you're awake 16 hours and you sleep eight, that is a natural rhythm for a human being. So you work six days and you rest on the seventh. That's a natural rhythm for a human being. And then when you look at the natural occurrences of these feast days, 
For those of you who are involved in agriculture in any respect, these feast days are absolutely critical to your agricultural practice. And so as a consequence, when you come to learn the calendar, the natural calendar, and you see the natural calendar in relation so that you can determine the feasts, now you can also understand the natural calendar. And by understanding the natural calendar, you all of a sudden, Pope Gregory doesn't have a, a grip on you anymore. All of a sudden, the 60-second minute and the 60-minute hour no longer has a grip on you because you're following the natural function of Yah. So I thank you, Steve, for that for that question. I hope that answered your question. Yes, sir. Uh, and if you would, maybe at some point in time, give a a, a, a video or something on this just so you can give somebody some concrete, you know what I mean? Because it don't matter what I say to him. He's my older brother, so <laughs> I'll never be right. He's a little hard-headed. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can tell you, I do have videos on it. Double-check the separate website. I have videos okay. on it. And I also have that subject to many people. all right and you can hey dr p and we'll see if they're convincing or not they probably won't be but... yeah dr p yeah yeah hey randall hey um i think another important thing is is the fact that uh the uh feast days are very 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 prophetic no noting the, the coming and the second coming and then we're supposed to be practicing practicing these things to better understand those those events. Yeah, like at the sound of the last trump, right? That has to do right. with the Yom Teruah, the sound of the last trump. Yeah, it's a very good point on that too. Yeah, but I think we can see clearly in the New Testament that these dates are very very relevant. They're very relevant, and even though we may not understand them, they're still nonetheless relevant. Okay, Susan, how are you? Okay, hi, I'm good. Hey. Is my head cut off? My head's cut off when I look at myself. I don't know. But, um, you know, I just wanted to mention something that uh, what Chris was saying and, and Stacy was saying, I'll be quick. You know, uh, in neurocardiology now, they're really finding how anger, you can kill someone with making them angry if you really wanted to, but it depresses the immune system, you know, for at least 48 hours. And they, people usually do get sick. And so really trying to help people be healthy is like teaching them how to have anger management, and especially with children too. So um, the other thing about anger is that it really uh, stimulates the sympathetic nervous system, which causes you to have a higher heart rate. It causes you to, your actual heart rate rhythms become very incoherent and chaotic so that uh, you just don't fare well. And it's even associated with early death. So because of your heart, is supposed to be very flexible, the, um, you know, the muscle itself and just the heart walls and more angry time you spend in anger with these very really jagged heart rate rhythms, your heart becomes very, very hard. You know, it, it is, there's so many references, you know, in scripture, you know, the uh, Pharaoh's hardened heart, but that's really what happens to us. So it really behooves us to really learn how to, you know, control our anger and control our emotions for the be our best. You know, just like, I mean, that's part of the commandments. You know, they really make sense, really, you know, to treat your neighbor, to treat someone well as you want to be treated and your heart will feel good. And that's and it will be healthy. And the other thing I just wanted to mention about um, what Chris was saying. Uh, oh, no, I think it was Stacy talking about, you know, uh, 
Bill Gates is talking about the new vaccine. And one of the things that it will do is it will ablate the section in the brain that the researchers have found that they just call it the God space. They don't really know. I mean, they don't really want to talk about yeah, but they know that when they stimulate it, everyone has this one experience of a of their creator, even if they're not a religious person. So he, they feel that it's the center for re religious zealotry and that it has to be, you know, MAGA Christians, whatever, but it has to be destroyed. And that once that's done, then they won't have these renegades like they consider people that believe in Yah. So it's very concerning. Yeah, I know. I mean, I really get a laugh out of them. You know, we need to we need to destroy that God gene because those are the people that blew up the the uh, the uh, twin towers. Right, um, right. No, actually, it wasn't. And we know it was these extremists. Well, no, really, it wasn't. And so you guys, you know, you start out with a lie and then you reach a conclusion predicated on the lie. And then you start taking science and moving it forward to, you know, affect uh, your solution, which is not a solution because it's not a problem. And so, you know, I mean, like I'll give you an example. I don't know about you guys, but there was a time when I was very inflamed against Islam. It was like, you know, those Muslims are just no good next. And we've got to, you know, we have to go to war with them and we have to fight them wherever we find them. And I just don't feel that way anymore. You know, uh, I, I think the average Muslim, I don't know if you guys have ever uh, ministered to any Muslims, but I have in the past. And the average Muslim is like the average Jew. You know, they, they just did a recent poll. 79% of Jews have never read one word of the Talmud. 79% have never read one word of Talmud. So we can look at the Talmud and see it's all full of wickedness and sin. And then you can assign that to the Jews if you want. But 79% of them have never even read it. I think the same number is consistent with Christians but who's read the Bible. you know. And, uh, and you have the same thing in Islam. Probably 79-80% of, of Islamic people are Islamic because their parents were, were Muslims. Of course, you have Muslim scholars and so forth, but uh, you know the fact that there were you know the Muslim extremists that were willing to blow up stuff were all put on the U.S. payroll. I mean, where do you think these? <laughs> where do you think Al Qaeda came from? They were the Mujahideen that we had funded to fight the Russians in Afghanistan, and they became Al Qaeda, which means the list. And we continued to fund them. We we hired them to fight in Syria. We hired them to fight in Libya. Now, this doesn't mean that there aren't Muslim extremists, for instance, uh, in Pakistan, where guys have been beat up and churches have been burned, uh, in Somalia, where churches have been burned and people hacked to death, in Indonesia, where people have been hacked to death, you know, East Timor, and so on and so forth. That doesn't mean that that stuff doesn't happen. It does. And I'm not trying to give anybody a pass on it. But what I'm trying to tell you is, the kind of hatred that was pushed at us by the media, you know, only good Muslim, dead Muslim, you know, this was the kind of stuff, that, the kind of rhetoric we got during the time of George Bush, right? Oh, they're Muslim. We need to go blow them up, right? And what we did is we went and killed a bunch of innocent people. And, uh, you know, so uh, I think that, you know, we, we have to, I think we as people, and then, and I've ministered to many, many Muslims. I've talked to many Muslims and had very good conversations with them. 
uh, concerning theology. And the better I get at discussing things with Muslims, the better the discussions get. You know, so uh, uh, it is something. These are all some things to consider. And in terms of what what Yah is pointing out to us is that you know, and this is part of this is another reason. I don't know how many of you guys still watch legacy media. You know, I'm talking about CNN, MSNBC, ABC, CBS, uh, NBC, or Fox News. If you're watching any of those media, you really have a responsibility to shut them off because they are preaching nothing but division and hate your neighbor all day long. Oh, I watch Fox News because they're objective. Hate the Democrat, hate the Democrat, hate the Democrat, hate the Democrat. It's preached all day long on that channel. Them. Look what they're trying to do to us. It's preached all day long. You don't need it. What you need to consider is who is your neighbor? You need to consider who is your neighbor and how, how are you going to love your neighbor as yourself? How do you do that? And you can't do that when somebody's preaching division into your ear 24-7. Get away from that stuff. It's pure poison. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Susan. Brian. Thank you. Brian, how are you? Chris, Brian and Chris, how are you? We're doing great. Thank you. Uh, Shalom. I just want to make a comment um, to this book that that uh, that Chris was talking about. That's bummer that Chris is not here. He somehow fell off or whatever. But anyway, there's two things I found very interesting in this book. The one is, I always will pray, because I prayed about this, and Yah answers prayer. He's very faithful. I prayed about why Yahushua was sold for 30 pieces of silver, and Joseph was paid for, sold for two, 20 pieces of silver, and they didn't match. But in this book, you'll find out that two of the brothers uh, sold them for 30 pieces of silver. They took the 10 off the top, split, split it between the two, and then the rest of the 20 were split the rest of the brethren. Yeah, who were the two? Me away. Who, took, who took the 10 off the top? I don't remember the two brothers. It's in this book. I have to go look it up again. But um, the two brothers took uh, the, the 10 off the top and then told the rest of the brothers we only got 20. I think it's really so, and that's what I like the Torah saying 20. So now it makes sense that you joke because Joseph's always been in my mind as a picture of Yahusha. And then the other thing you'll see in this book is Levi himself says there's a higher priesthood coming. He prophesied in his end days. The higher priesthood is the Melchizedek, which we learn about in the book of Hebrews. It says, you know, Hebrews 7.11 says, no, we're no longer in the order of Aaron. And, and then real quickly on the feast days, Abraham celebrated the feast days. Um, and Noah fell days, you look in Jubilees, Noah fell, but celebrated the feast days well before Moses was there. And you'll see it also in, um, in, in Sodom and Gomorrah with Lot. What does Lot do? He bakes the angels unleavened cakes. And the next day he leaves Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, is that a picture of the Israelites leaving Israel? He yeah. bakes unleavened cakes that you read in there. So well before Moses' time. So these feast days are Yah's feast days. He wants us to celebrate them before him because he loves his children. It's not so much as, because Yah, the sacrifices now is Yahusha. He is the final sacrifice. You don't need to do sacrifices. You do it through him. When you are honoring him and worshiping him and celebrating these feasts in front of him, you are utilizing his great works that he did on the tree. Thank you. The book is called The Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs by R.H. Charles, but I'll put it in the chat. Yeah. 
Yeah, R.H. Charles was one, was one translator of it. But yeah, the testimony of the 12 patriarchs, yeah, it's a very good read. Thank you for that, Brian. And Chris probably fell off because he's in the middle of load shedding. And <clears throat> they, you know, they turn off the power there usually three times a day for about four hours a day. So if you're- Yeah, I'm here, Doc. I'm here. <laughs> hang up All right, I heard that. Thanks, Brian. Right. Yeah, okay, thanks. Yeah. Blessings to you, David. Okay. Mary and Rod, how are you? Hi, Dr. P. I didn't want to bring up anything really kind of a bummery, but um, you know, there's an executive order that was produced in November on Marburg. And I just kind of wanted to bring that forward. And I really wanted to thank Stacy and do a second witness because y'all brought me to this group um, when I was down on my hands and knees and thanking him for his creation and how sad everything that was happening and he told me to go look on dr p's website and i can't remember if it was under the prayers prayer for the day and it was joel 321 and because <clears throat> i was praying for the salvation of those people that got shot you know shots if it could ever be possible and because he saved me from doing it and when I, when I read that, I just was uh, so thankful of his mercy, but how important it is for us to get, bring forth that wisdom, you know, of, um, you know, there are final consequences. So I just really wanted to thank you and thank you for the work you're doing. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's very true that, you know, when, when I read that passage in Joel, you know, I realized that Yah's mercy does endure forever. And, you know, the beauty of, of Yah's mercy, the difficulty is, one hand, we're all saying, how long, Yah, are you going to let this wickedness continue? How long, how long, how long? But on the other hand, he delayed his judgment long enough to rescue me. <laughs> you know, and that had, it, that took a measure of endurance, I'll tell you what. But, uh, you know, when when you think about that, you know, he, yeah, he's very slow to anger and his mercy endures forever. So he's holding his mercy out to all of mankind for as long as he can. But ultimately, there's going to come a point where mankind has risen into iniquity. And we're just about there. We're just about there. We've ridden, risen to an iniquity that is going to kill all of mankind. Because You know, I was going to ask you too, Dr. P., I was thinking about Obadiah and I was wondering if, you know, how, how Obadiah talks about the house of Jacob. It, it's in the first chapter and, um, and that it all, you know, that it will all become stubble. Esau will no longer be anymore. And I was wondering if that was what the Mashiach was telling us that we will do greater things because y'all will be with us and Esau will be no more. I think it's a big, that's a big part of it. And I think, you know, when we talk about where we're going to be in, in the millennial reign is going to be really quite wonderful, quite beautiful for those of us that see it. Uh, you know, it's going to be quite wonderful. You're going to live very long lives and it's going to be a very beautiful thing. And this is what I try to teach, try to tell the young people, because the young people oftentimes listen to us and they think, you guys are just gloom and doom all the time. I don't want to hear it anymore, you know. Oh, the end is coming, the end is coming, blah, 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 blah. And I try to tell the young people, well, there's a millennial rain coming. 
that's going to be something spectacular, something wonderful, something very beautiful, something that is more extraordinary than anything you've ever lived through or that anyone else has ever lived through. And cast your hope on, on that rain and cast your hope on that by following after righteousness that you may be included in that. And so, you know, and I think that's where we want to be. And so we can, you know, we can love that and, and cast into it. Okay. Okay. Thank you guys. Thank you for that, Mary. Appreciate that. David Barrow. <laughs> I, uh, it talks about uh, in, in convicted of sin. And I, I, you know, I have to take that personal. And I had to, I had to uh, see uh, various different revelations to know if I was in transgression or criminal. And it was all personal. I mean, I had to judge myself and see that I had, I had a conviction of something I was doing wrong. And so when I see the abomination in, in his house, acting as though he's Elohim, uh, it was an attack on, in this member, uh, in, in myself, uh, self was uh, involved. So I had to uh, take heed to that and, and not lean on my own self. It's like I'm looking really big, big in uh, John or Johanan chapter. Chapter 7, verse 18, it talks about the difference between self and Neruach. Uh, when I step out now, or have stepped out in the revelation to believe, and, and something that is against what the world says, as uh, the world being wrong, and I was indoctrinated by the world, I had to put have a change of uh, who I'm listening to. And so I had to, my battle was in my own mind or in my own, within myself, in this, in this, in this, uh, in this tabernacle. So judging myself, I had to see self. I had to see idolatrous self and repent of it to the point where I was trusting in the living word of Yahuwah to step out well it always was end up with it wasn't out there in someone else it was in me I had to take a thought captive and cast down an imagination that exalted itself against what I was seeing as truth and life and the way in the way and I had and, and it, it really was in it was in straight gate in a narrow way and has been, still is. So easily led and quick to repent means to me that as I walk out in it, a loving father is going to correct me if I'm not walking correctly. And quick to repent means, oh, thank you. And I get back in the past. So when manifestation was seated with him now in heaven, places there's new creation the world's against it the natural mind is against it so to have it manifest i have to uh be vigilant for that in me not someone else in me in this in this member in this member in particular 
And so if it's exalting itself against the truth, uh, if I recognize that, and that's that's it comes from enlightenment, <clears throat> I have to take those thoughts captive and cast those images down because they're going to try to steal it. That those those thoughts. Well, you know, you know, David, that you know, we always have, you know, as it says in Scripture, you know, uh, Satan is like a roaring lion waiting outside the door, you know, ready to rip you up gets a half a second of chance you know and i shouldn't i really hate to see satan compared to a lion because i really like lions but uh but you know he is an attacking lion right and but let me ask you this question how are you doing brother i'm better uh, hallelujah oh, wow. various different uh manifestations of uh increase and uh, not only in my me but in my house and in uh loved ones that i have uh uh, uh, being reunited with, uh, it's just I'm really ex excited about what you was doing. I, I also know uh, that uh, we're coming into an extremely uh, interesting time as set apart people uh, because I, uh, we're coming in. We have to really examine ourselves. And examine, uh, we can't be, if I point my finger at someone else, it's vanity. If I, if, if I point, if, if I put forth the finger in vanity, then I'm not, I haven't judged myself enough. So having, having a, a belief system work and not be stolen, like, Praying for someone that, uh, and then get a uh, get an answer that's going to produce. You know, if I intercede for somebody, I basically I ask how to be effective in that intercession. If it's not, if it, and wait and wait for the answer because the answer is uh, the most important. That's the anointing that's going to make present, going to manifest the things that are uh, hopeful, are believed for, expected. And so if, if I don't get that, then I'll pursue why I didn't get it. Uh, the issue is, is that uh, when I do get it and I know it and I stand on it, there's going to be some opposition, opposition from the world, the flesh and the devil to try to steal it because they don't want that happening. And if you're going to stand on it, says you, there's a, a verse that I've had manifest to me more than, no, it says, uh, he keeps me as apple of his eye, and there's no strange ill found with me. And I'm not, I don't receive that. And I, I, I resist that by the word of my testimony and the blood of the Lamb. He purges my conscience from dead works to serve the living El, Elohim, Yahuwah, through Yahusha. Now, then I've seen power manifest that's I, certainly I can't take any credit for. But I can take I, I can believe that I've been anchored in that place that manifests his power because he's I haven't been moved into unbelief. Now <clears throat> it doesn't happen every time because I get moved, I have been moved out of into in, 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 into a place of unstableness. But when I when when I haven't been moved and I'm stand against it. His power manifests. 
Why? Because he said, I'm seated with him in the Shamayim, not somewhere else. I mean, I don't have to wait for faith to, to uh, a belief to be, because he says, now belief is. Now I realize it's not going it, to, it's going to get a lot better. It's going to get a lot more defined after the Kodashim are completely refined and become completed. But now belief is. And we can press towards that now belief is in understanding that where the anointing is, like in that, that verse in chapter 18, it says, and in him there is no right, unrighteousness. Well, when we get to that point, because he, the sending the sending of the uh, of the Ruach Hayuwa is is that's what we have on us is that sending. Then it manifests. It ain't gonna. It's not gonna not manifest because it's him. It's not me. It's not you. It's not anybody else. I can't. I have to point the finger at at, at self and say, no, I'm not gonna be idolatrous. I don't want idolatry anywhere near me. I resist it. And so that's selfishness, I, 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 idolatry. That's the biggest weapon that creeps into this, this tabernacle uh, that I found that resists the manifestation of the power. I, 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 I think it's about basically what we've been talking about. And so anyway, uh, Shabbat Shalom, Stephen, and uh, thank you for this opportunity. Right, well, blessings to you, David, and, and may your uh your familial uh relationships be a blessing to you and be and be a a thing of joy hey okay thanks david okay mary horn how are you i'm well thank you dr p i really uh, appreciate these opportunities to uh learn from everyone i'm hoping my question will help others um i think we're all trying to follow after righteousness and uh like uh, David was saying, you know, taking our thoughts captive in, you know, Philippians 4, 8, think on these things to help us in the difficult moments. Uh, my question is how to deal with uh, those times, you know, where we lose shalom, you know, specifically in Matthew 5, 43 through 45, you know, it says to uh, love your enemies uh, I think we can probably do that by, you know, walking, talking the commandments, because um, that is love. But it says to pray for those that persecute you. And my thoughts get in the way of praying, you hood, take them out. <laughs> and I, I don't understand how, really what I'm supposed to pray, because, you know, in these relationships where we talk about, you know, leaving situations that take our shalom. Sometimes you can't leave certain relationships. Uh, you know, you have to deal with it. And uh, let's say family. And it continues on and continues on. And it really wears uh, to where you don't know what to do because you think, okay, I think I'm doing everything right. Why am I... Maybe I haven't learned something, as you're saying. You know, take the opportunity to see what I can learn. Well, there's. Uh, but really, how do you pray? What do you pray for? Not to Mary, That's... because remember that when he say when he says pray for those who persecute you, you're to love your neighbor as yourself. So one of the things that I think is something to put in your own mind is to try to obtain a perfect understanding of your neighbor. 
why is your neighbor persecuting you? What's going on in their mind? Try to have a perfect understanding of what's going on in their mind. Now, oftentimes, sometimes that perfect understanding is the person persecuting you is just flat wicked. And all they want to do is hurt. That's one understanding. I don't know if you remember the movie uh, Independence Day, but the president of the United States finally had a chance to talk to the alien that had landed. And he said, what do you want from us? And when the alien said one word, die, right? Want all of you guys dead and gone. So uh, the uh, uh, that's an interesting situation. But when you're talking about praying for people, you know, what's the ultimate prayer for people? The ultimate prayer is that they have ears that can hear and eyes that can see and that they are awakened into salvation. And the person that's persecuting you, if they are awakened into salvation, what happens to their persecution? goes away because they too have to learn how to love their neighbor. And so this is why not always imprecatory prayer, Mary, not always imprecatory prayer, you know, David's prayer. You know, it's like in Fiddler on the Roof. Do you have a prayer for the czar? Yes. May Yah keep the czar far away from us, right? <laughs> and that, and if you look closely at that movie, that prayer was in fact answered. The czar did keep himself far away from them but did so by expelling them from their community and kicking them out of the country, right? So that prayer was in fact answered. So sometimes you have to be careful what you say. Okay, Blackie, how are you, brother? Shabbat shalom, Mishpashas. Shabbat shalom. Uh, I, I wanted to give a, another witness to about the feasts uh, that was brought up. Um, because I was I was in another Torah group where we had talked about about the feast as well. Um, but the uh, the guy that was leading the group, you know, he was pressuring people to to uh, give money for sacrificing lambs over there in Jerusalem, and that's kind of where I I left because uh, I asked you uh, about that a while back. If we still need to do sacrifice, and you clearly, uh, you cleared that up for me, where you pointed out uh, that the sacrifice for animals is is finished. So I, I want to give you thanks for that. Um, and I want to read. It's in Corinthians, First Corinthians five, where Paul is is talking about keeping the feasts. Um, in First Corinthians five six through eight. And I'm just going to go to the highlights on that. He says, Know ye not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven. And as even Mashiach, our Pesach, is sacrificed for us, therefore, let us keep the feast. And so he's clearly referring to keeping Pesach. And then... Paul goes on in Ephesians 5, uh, from 24 to 29, he's saying, Therefore, as the called out assembly is subject unto Mashiach, so let the woman be to their own man in everything. So the key word is called out assembly, which is the Feast of Trumpets. We, we are called out. In, into an assembly. 
and you read further on, Paul says, yeah. men love your women, even as Mashiach also loved the called out assembly and gave himself for it, which would be Pesach, that he may sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, which is days of awe, that he might present it to himself a glorious called out assembly, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing that it should be holy and made and without blemish, which is Yom Kippur. And then on verse 29, for no man has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, even as Yahuwah, the called out assembly, alluding to Feast of Tabernacles. Wow, outstanding, Blackie. That is just, that's outstanding. I haven't heard that taught before in that respect. I think it's a very outstanding presentation uh, because you're right. And, you know, the days of awe are something, you know, that are that do appear in the Gospels. I mean, this it's in Luke 4 that Mashiach went out into the wilderness for 40 days. And you see that replicated, you know, the Christian church tries to call that Lent. You know, oh, we're going to have Lent, 40 days of Lent, right? Well, it's completely misplaced in the calendar, totally misplaced. You don't do Lent before Pesach, you do Lent before Atonement, right? And uh, anyway, so uh, yeah, that's a very, very good word concerning the called out assembly, being wrinkle-free, without blemish, so on and so forth. All of these things leading into Yom Kippur. And again, it is all reinforcement of the understanding that Paul taught it, Mashiach taught it and practiced it. And so it's very clear that well, that it does appear in the Besorah, in the Brit Hadashah, we have these teachings very clear. And people say, well, I just want to be like Jesus. Well, you know, okay, well, look, you know, what would Jesus do, right? WWJD. Well, you know, for one thing, he went to this, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, as was his custom. He went there all the time, as was his custom. You also see him keeping Pesach. You also see him keeping Shavuot. You see all of these things. And it's like, okay, well, uh, and then Paul, right? Paul, you know, took the Nazarite vow twice. He took the Nazarite vow twice. And he, you know, he would he would go from the far ends of the earth, risk his life on some crazy ship to get back to Jerusalem for the, for the high feast because he had to be there for it. So, you know, when you look at these, when you look at what the concrete evidence is in the New Testament, all of the teachers in the New Testament were feast keepers. They were all feast keepers. They were all Sabbath keepers, and they were all feast keepers. And it's only Rome that lies to you that you don't need to do that. Rome telling you that. What you need to do is you need to give obeisance to Rome, not to the Scripture. You need to call your leaders father, even though the scripture says, don't call no man father. Or in Judaism, they call your leader rabbi when the scripture says, call no man rabbi. Well, what are you talking about? Well, you know, ignore that stuff and follow us, right? Because guess what? We're in place of the son of God on earth. Vicarious filio dei, right? And this is what you see in all these religious constructs. They're really anathema to the scripture that they purport to follow. They have rules that 
violate those very tenets of scripture. Okay. Thank you, Blackie. Phil, what do we got for us, brother? Well, I'm, I'm happy to read for you, but there's also just one other thing briefly, when you were talking about that, the garment, yeah. um, do you remember down at the coast, there was this animal called a chitin, which is spelled just like ketone. Are you familiar with this, this animal, this organism? No, no. Down on, down on the coast, you say, I'm not familiar with it. Yeah. In the Pacific Northwest, it's, uh, it's this animal and it, it lives on a rock and it's, it's got this shell that covers the entirety of the animal, except the part that holds onto the rock. And it is spelled C-H-I-T-O-N. And I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. And so what appears outside the cover is the hands. Otherwise, the cover goes all the way to the to the hands holding it onto the rock, right? Yeah, the entire body of the animal is attached to the rock. And the only thing that we can interact with is this covering. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Very interesting, yeah. And where'd they get the name One Wonders? <laughs> mm -hmm. So happy to read if you need a reader. Yeah. So yeah, we do need, we do need readers. Okay. One last, uh, Ezra, one last comment that we got, somebody has got to read the Torah and I think it's going to be Phil. Shalom, shalom from Malaysia. May I read too? Yes, you bet. Okay. So let's <laughs> with Phil and then we'll, then we'll get the next couple of chapters from Ezra. Okay. So we're going to pick it up in uh, Shemot Exodus chapter 10. So Phil, if you would read chapter 10 and chapter 11, then we'll have Ezra pick it up from there. Okay. So, so if you'll do 10 and 11, okay, here we go. Let me, let me, would you like me to start or wait for your screen? Uh, no, go ahead. Well, here on the screen, the screen, go ahead. And Yahweh said unto El Moshe, go in unto Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I might show these signs before him, and that you may tell in the ears of your son and of your son's son what things I have wrought in Mitzrayim and my signs which I have done among them, that ye may know how that I am Yahweh. And Moshe and Aharon came in unto Pharaoh and said unto him, Thus says Yahweh, Elohai of the Ivrim, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. Else, if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow will I bring the locusts into your coast. And they shall cover the face of the earth, that one cannot be able to see the earth. And they shall eat the remnant of that which is escaped, which remains unto you from the hail, and shall eat every tree which grows for you out of the field. And they shall fill your houses, and the houses of all your servants, and the houses of all the Mitzrayim, which neither your fathers nor your fathers' fathers have seen since the day that they were upon the earth unto this day. And he turned himself and went out from Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's servants said unto him, How long shall this man be a snare unto us? Let the men go, that they may serve Yahweh Elohim. Elohim. Know you not that Mitzrayim is destroyed? And Moshe and Aaron were brought again unto Pharaoh. And he said unto them, Go, serve Yahweh Elohim. But who are they that shall go? And Moshe said, we will go with our young men, with our young and with our old, with our sons and with our daughters, with our flocks and with our herds we will go, for we must hold a feast unto Yahweh. And he said unto them, Let Yahweh be with you, as I will let you go and your little ones. Look to it, for evil is before you. Not so, 
Go now that that are men and serve Yahweh, for that ye did desire. And they were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. And Yahweh said unto Moshe, Stretch out your hand over the land of Mitzrayim for the locusts, that they may come up upon the land of Mitzrayim, and eat every herb of the land, even all that the hail is left. And Moshe stretched forth his rod over the land of Mitzrayim, and Yahweh brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts, and the locusts went up over, the, over all the land of Mitzrayim and rested in all the coasts of Mitzrayim. Very grievous were they. Before them there were no such locusts as they, neither after them shall be such. For they covered the face of the whole earth, so that the land was darkened. And they did eat every herb of the land, and all the fruit of the trees which the hill had left. And there remained not any green thing in the trees, or in the herbs of the field, through all the land of Mitzrayim. Then Pharaoh called for Moshe and Aaron in haste, and he said, I have sinned against Yahweh Elohim, and against you. Now, therefore, forgive, I pray you, my sin only this once, and entreat Yahweh Elohim, that he may take away from me this death only. And he went out from Pharaoh and entreated Yahweh. And Yahweh turned a mighty strong west wind, which took away the locusts and cast them into the Red Sea. There remained not one locust in all the coasts of Mitzrayim. But Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, so that he would not let the children of Yasharel go. And Yahweh said unto Moshe, Stretch out your hand toward the heavens, that there may be darkness over the land of Mitzrayim, even darkness which may be felt. And Moshe stretched forth his hand toward the heavens, and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Mitzrayim three days. They saw not one another, neither rose any from his place for three days, but all the children of Yasharel had light in their dwellings. And Pharaoh called unto Moshe and said, Go ye, serve Yahweh, only let your flocks and your herds be stayed, let your little ones also go with you. And Moshe said, You must give us also sacrifices, and ascending smoke offerings, that we may sacrifice unto Yahweh Elohim. Our cattle also shall go with us, there shall be not a hoof left behind, for thereof we must take to serve Yahweh Elohim. And we know not with what we must serve Yahweh until we come thither. But Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. And Pharaoh said unto him, Get you from me, take heed to yourself, see my face no more. For in that day you see my face, you shall die. And Moshe said, You have spoken well, I will see your face again no more. So here you see, Phil, that here's the proof right here. There shall not one hoof be left behind. Pharaoh says, yeah, you can leave. Leave all your cattle, all your sheep, you know, leave your stuff. You guys go ahead and just leave your stuff behind. We'll be okay. Now, for those of you that know the Alhambra decree that took place in, on the 9th of Bob in 1492, the Jews were cast out of Spain. And when they were cast out of Spain, they were told, you can't take anything with you. You can't take your gold and silver with you. You can take nothing with you. Get out and leave everything behind. And here Pharaoh tried to pull the same stunt. But you can see Moshe told him, nope, we're not going to leave one hoof behind. Okay, let's go ahead and pick it up chapter 11. Yahweh said unto Moshe, 
Yet will I bring one plague more upon Pharaoh and upon Mitzrayim. Afterwards, he will let you go then, hence. When he shall let you go, he shall surely thrust you out hence altogether. Speak now in the ears of the people, and let every man borrow of his neighbor, and every woman of her neighbor, jewels of silver and jewels of gold. And Yahweh gave the people favor in the sight of the Mitzrayim. Moreover, the man Moshe was very great in the land of Mitzrayim, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. And Moshe said, Thus says Yahweh, About midnight will I go out into the midst of Mitzrayim, and the firstborn in the land of Mitzrayim shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sits upon his throne, even unto the firstborn of the maiden servant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of beasts. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Mitzrayim, such as there was none like it, nor shall be like it any more. But against any of the children of Yasharel shall not a dog move his tongue against man or beast. That you may know how that Yah, Yahweh, puts a difference between the Mitzrayim and Yasharel. And all these your servants shall come down unto me, and bow down themselves unto me, saying, Get you out, and all the people that follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in a great anger. And Yahweh said unto Moshe, Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Mitzrayim. And Moshe and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, so that he would not let the children of Yashrael go out of his land. Yeah, no, it's interesting that these plagues would come in this way. And we're going to see now, uh, when Ezra picks up the reading here, that... What had was spoken by Pharaoh initially was, let us, uh, you know, kill the firstborn sons of all of the house of, of, uh, of Yaakov. And Moshe was supposed to be killed in that slaughter, but he survived it because of the miracle of him being put in the ark and the bulrush and so forth. And now that casting out that had come out of Pharaoh's mouth at at the time of Moshe's birth is going to ultimately result in this, these ending plagues. So go ahead and pick it up, if you would, uh, Ezra, at chapter 12. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Go ahead. Okay. Shemos 12. And Yahuwah spoke unto El Moshe and El Aaron in the land of Mizraim, saying, This month, shall be unto you the beginning of months, and it shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the assembly of Yasharal, saying, In the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house, take it according to the number of the souls. Every man, according to his eating, shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month, and the whole multitude of the assembly of Rasharal shall kill it in the evening, and they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the houses, wherein 
they shall eat it, and they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and mudza, and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire, his head with his legs, and with pertinence thereof. And you shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remains of it until the morning you shall burn with fire, and thus shall you eat it, and your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is Yahuwah's Pesach. For I shall pass through the land of Mizraim this night, and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Mizraim, both man and beast, and against all the Elohai of Mizraim, I will execute judgment. I am Yahuwah, and the blood shall be to you a mark upon the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Mizraim. And this day shall be unto you a memorial, and you shall keep it a feast to Yahuwah throughout your generations, and you shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Seven days shall you eat matzah, even the first day you shall put away leaven out of your houses, and whoever eats the hamats from the first day until the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Yasharal, and in the first day there shall be a holy assembly, and in the seventh day there shall be a holy assembly unto you. No manner of work shall be done in them, save that which every man must eat that only may be done to you, of you. And you shall guard the feast of Matzah, for in this selfsame day have I brought your enemies out of the land of Mizraim. Therefore shall you guard this day in your generations by an ordinance forever in the first month. On the fourteenth day of the month at even, you shall eat Matzah until the one and twentieth day of the month at even. Seven days shall there be no hamats found in your houses for whoever, whosoever eats that which is with hamats, even that soul shall be cut off from the assembly of Yasharal, whether he be a stranger or born in the land. You shall eat nothing with hamats in all your habitations shall ye eat matzah. Then Moshe called for all the elders of Yasharal and said unto them, Draw out and take you a lamb according to your families and kill the Pesach. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out at the door of his house until the morning. For Yahuwah will pass through to smite the Mitzrayim. And when he sees the blood, upon the lintel and on the two side posts, Yahuwah will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come in unto your houses to smite you. And you shall guard this thing for an ordinance to you and to your son forever. And it shall come to pass when you are come to the land which Yahuwah will give you according 
as he has promised that you shall guard this service and it shall come to pass when your children shall say to you, unto you, what bring ye by this service? That you shall say, it is the sacrifice of Yahuwah's Pesach who passed over the houses of the children of Yasharal in Mizraim when he smote the Mizraim and delivered our houses. And the people bowed the head and worshipped. And the children of Yasharal went away and did as Yahuwah had commanded Moshe and Aaron, so did they. And it came to pass that at midnight, Yahuwah smote all of his firstborn of the land of Mizraim, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle and Pharaoh rose up in the night, and he and all his servants and all the Mizraim, and there was a great cry in Mizraim, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. And he called for Moshe and Aharon by night and said, Rise up and get out forth from among my people, both you and your children of Yasharal, and go, go, serve Yahuwah as you have said. Also, take your flocks and your herds, flocks and herds as you, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. And the Mizraim were urgent upon the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we will all be dead men. And the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading troughs being bound up in their clothes upon their shoulders. And the children of Yasharal did according to the word of Moshe, and they borrowed of the Mizraim jewels of silver and jewels of gold and, and raiment. And Yahuwah gave the people favor in the sight of the Mizraim, so that they lent unto them such things as they required. And they spoiled the Mizraim. And the children of Yasharal journeyed from Ramses to Hukos, about 600,000 on foot that were men beside children. And a mixed multitude went up also with them and flocks and herds, even much cattle. Wow. Yeah, as so much cattle. You see some interesting things, right? So much cattle. See yeah. that once again we have this number was <laughs> that there's six hundred thousand men on foot. Six hundred thousand men. So you can there's probably about six hundred thousand women, not including the children. Wow. Okay. And <laughs> Pharaoh says, Okay, yeah, you can take your herds and your flocks. Oh, sorry, I'm sorry I told you don't take the herds and the flocks. Take the herds and the flocks, get them out of here, and take some jewels and some gold and maybe some food. But hit the road, right? Get out. Don't hang around here. If you do, we're all going to be dead. And so because of this, they leave. And what do you see? A mixed multitude went up with them, with flocks and herds, even very many cattle, right? That's what it says. Okay, let's go ahead and pick it up, Ezra. Sorry for interrupting. That's all right. Verse 39, And they baked the matzah cakes of the dough 
which they brought forth out of Mitzrayim, for it was not leaven, because they were thrust out of Mitzrayim and could not tarry, neither had they prepared for themselves any victual. Now the sojourning of the children of Yasharel, who dwelt in the land of Mitzrayim and in the land of Canaan, they and their fathers was 430 years. And it came to pass, at the end of 430 years, even the selfsame day, it came to pass that all the hosts of Yahuwah went out from the land of Mitzrayim, and it was a night to be much observed unto Yahuwah for bringing them out from the land of Mitzrayim. This is that night of Yahuwah to be observed of all the children of Yasharal in their generations. And Yahuwah said unto Moshe and Aharon, This is the ordinance of the Pesach. There shall no stranger eat thereof. But every man's servant that is brought for money, when you have circumcised him, then shall he eat thereof. A foreigner and a hired servant shall not eat thereof. In one house shall it be eaten. You shall not carry forth out of the flesh, abroad, out of the house. Neither shall you break a bone thereof. All the assembly of Yasharal shall keep it. And when a stranger surgeon with you and will keep the Pesach to Yahuwah, let all males be circumcised. And then let him come near and keep it and he shall be as one that is born in the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat thereof. One Torah shall be to him that is homeborn, and unto the stranger that sojourns among you. Thus did all the children of Yasharal, as Yahuwah commanded Moses and Aaron, so did they. And it came to pass the self-saved day that Yahuwah will bring the children of Yasharal out of the land of Mizraim by their armies. By their armies. Yeah, outstanding, you know, Ezra. And of course, you know, we look now when we talk about the circumcision, the circumcision, I believe, now is talking about the circumcision of the heart. This is discretion. Deuteronomy 4, the circumcision of the heart. If you do not have a circumcised heart, don't be keeping the Pesach, right? Mm. Don't be okay, let's go ahead and pick it up in chapter 13. And Yahuwah spoke unto Moshe, saying, Sanctify unto me all the firstborn whatsoever opens the womb among the children of Yasharal, both of man and of beast. It is mine. And Moshe said unto the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Mizraim, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of hand, Yahuwah brought you out from this place. There shall no hamets be eaten. This day shall be, came ye out this in the month of Aviv. Aviv. Abib. Abib. Abib should be the correct one. No, no V. Abib. Yeah, month of Abib. And it shall be when Yahuwah shall bring you into the land of Canaim and Shittim and Amorim and Shivim and Yehuvim, uh, which he swore unto your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. Oh, hallelujah. That you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days shall you eat matzah, and in the seventh day shall 
be a feast to Yahuwah. Matzah shall be eaten seven days, and there shall no hummets be seen with you, neither shall there be leaven seen with you in all your quarters, and you shall show your son in that day, saying, This is done because of that which Yahuwah did unto me when I came forth out of Mitzrayim, and it shall be for a sign unto you upon your hand and for a memorial between your eyes that Yahuwah's Torah may be in your mouth, for with a strong hand did has Yahuwah brought you out of the land of Mitzrayim, and you shall therefore guard this ordinance in this appointed time from year to year, and it shall be when Yahuwah shall bring you into the land of Canaan, as he swore unto you and to your fathers, and shall give it you, that you shall set apart unto Yahuwah all that open the womb, and every firstling that comes from a beast which you have, the males shall be Yahuwah's, and every firstling of an ass you shall redeem with a lamb, and if you will not redeem it, then you shall break his neck, and all the firstborn of man among your children shall you redeem. And it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this that you shall say unto him? By the strength of Yahuwah brought us out of Mizraim from the house of bondage. And it came to pass when Pharaoh would hardly let us go, that Yahuwah slew all the firstborn in the land of Mitzrayim, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore I sacrifice to Yahuwah all that opens the womb, being males, but all the firstborn of my children I redeem, and it shall be for a mark upon your hand and for frontlets between your eyes, for by strength of hand Yahuwah brought us out of Mizraim, and it shall come to pass when Varro had let the people go, that Elohim let them through, let them not through the way of the land of the Philistine, although that was near. For Elohim said, Less perchance the people repent when they see war and they return to Mizraim. Okay. Elohim. Ezra, that concludes the read on the Torah portion. And I have to tell you, brother. Outstanding job. I love the way you read. This is in all the right places. And uh, get a very good handle on what's going on there. I really appreciate it. Thank you, brother. Yeah, that dramatized version from a Malaysian Chinese. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're rocking the cat, buddy. Yeah, good job. So, so here we have that we see. Now we can see a number of things. One of the things we have to kind of have to talk about is this redemption of the firstborn. So the redemption of the firstborn is an offering that is given. It's not really an offering. It's a redemption that because no child is going to be sacrificed, but the child is going to be redeemed. In other words, the child becomes a child of Yah, that the firstborn child is really committed to Yah in every respect but is redeemed from the sacrifice that is there is an offering that is given in lieu of the child. And in this case, they tell you it's going to be a lamb that's given in lieu of the child, right? Okay. Now, is there anybody that would like to read the Haftarah, the Jeremiah portion? Uh, Brian, would you like to read that maybe for us? 
no, I would not like to read that, but I wouldn't want to comment. Again, you see this picture of 430 years from, it says same day, self same day that I believe Yahusha came down and broke bread with Abraham and drank the wine. You see that same picture. And then, like I said, you see the backup of that, of Yalat baking unleavened cakes. That's 430 years. Because remember, I asked you this question before. Twice in the Bible, it says 430. And then twice in the Bible, it says 400. And I believe it has to do with Isaac being 30 years of age. Um, there's the difference. I don't know what significant 30 of age, but I think it's very, because Abraham's told that he's going to have a son when, when Yahushua comes and breaks the bread and the wine. I think it's very interesting. And that's the firstborn. And there's a lot of stuff here that I don't think we're all getting. Yeah, I think you're right. And I mean, I think there is a, a certain amount of, like the 430 years is not 430 years in Mitzrayim. It's 430 years from the day that Abraham begins his sojourning. And so it goes back. I mean, once once Abraham, Abraham becomes a stranger in a strange land, then, you know, this is when the, you start beginning to count the 430 years. And uh, so, yeah, and so I, th I think you're right. I mean, there is a calculation there concerning Isaac and so on and so forth that gives us a different kind of timing. And so when you see all of it combined, like I say, there is so much information in Egypt that, uh, you know, how is it that these pharaohs forgot Joseph? I mean, was this not told? This miracle that happened of seven years of, of, of storage and seven years of being able to feed people through the famine for seven years, was this not told? Was this not an understanding in history? And it had to be a fairly recent history. You're talking about it was probably less than a century old uh, by the time that we get into the servitude. But instead, I think we see something that is animosity. Pharaoh had animosity against the children of Yasharel. And that animosity is what brought them into servitude. And you can also see the animosity is that we're going to crack the whip over these people because, and it's very clear that Pharaoh says, they outnumber us. And if we don't keep them in bondage, they will overtake us or they'll join an invading army. They outnumber us, which tells you what? That the regime of Pharaoh was an apartheid regime at this time. It was an apartheid regime at this time. Okay, so... When you look at all of that combined, is it true what it, what the record gives us in Yochid the Herman that says that from Seti the first forward, these were children of Esau that were running Egypt? Now, equally true, the, the Greek record is in open admission that all of the Greek mythology came into Greece from, guess where? Egypt. It came into Greece from Egypt. And you're going to see really a couple of classes of people that are going to come into Greece. One is, of course, excuse me, just a minute. I got to take, uh, put my video on just a minute. I'm talking. I need to have my video on. Uh, come on, mouse. Let's go. There we go. So one is the fact that you have, you know, you have uh, uh, the house of Zarak, namely Calcol, who's going to leave early on, probably during the life of Joseph. Calcol leaves and goes up to Greece. And he brings with him Egyptian practices. Now, also, prior to the Exodus, the house of Shimon departs from, uh, also from Egypt. And they would become, they would occupy the Peloponnesian Peninsula. And they become the house of Sparta. 
And then, of course, another son of Zerach, who is uh, Darda or Dardanus, is going to assert rule and control over a group of, of, of tribe, if you will, the tribe of Lydia or the tribe of Lud, which was a tribe, the son of Shem that had gone north. The only one that had really gone north for Shem was Lud. And Dardanus is going to come to rule over the tribe of Lydia or the tribe of Lud in the creation of the city of Troy. And all of these things are going to have Egyptian practices brought into them. And so the Greeks readily admit that they got everything they have in terms of their mythology from the Egyptians. The Romans readily admit that they got all of their mythology from Greece. So all of this is being fed from the same place. Isis, Horus, Seth. IHS. It's all coming out of Egypt. And when you see the, this household being captured by Esau, that Esau is eventually going to take its obelisk and it's going to plant it in Rome, right in St. Peter's Square, which is not a square. It, was, it wasn't named after St. Peter when it was built. It's a circle. And it has an Egyptian obelisk in the middle of it. And that is the significance that the authority of Egypt was transplanted from Egypt to Rome and to displace the Kittim, if you will, the Etruscans, who were of the house of Yafet, they were displaced by the house of Esau, which moved its political authority from Egypt to Rome. And ultimately, that authority would be divided between Constantine and Rome. But at any rate, when you realize that, now you can see that the, the Pharaoh knew full well that these were the children of his brother, Yaakov. The children of Esau knew full well these were the children of, ya of Yaakov. And they wanted them in bondage, and they wanted to make their their slavery more with rigor. So this enslavement of the house of Yasharel, you know, Shemot says, "Oh, Pharaoh did not know, did not remember Joseph." But the truth is that it wasn't Pharaoh that didn't know. The truth is is that they did know. They knew that these were the children of Yasharel, and once the Pharaoh the Pharaoh's seat was overcome by the house of Esau beginning with Seti the first, guess what? In came the punishment, in came the war. Now we can see that that war is really, has been going on for a long time and that Esau would come to dominate the written record. We're going to tell you what the record was. Esau is going to tell you what the record is. You're not going to get the record, you know, to the extent that they had to give obeisance to the truth in order to have credibility, they couldn't change every word. But they changed the fundamentals in order to disguise the most important things, the name of the creator, the name of the Mashiach, right? Those two things, they went out of their way to disguise. And because of that, they've been able to reign over and to rule over mankind. And so this becomes a, a, a very kind of critical aspect to all of this, right? And, okay, all right, so let's see. Uh, Eugenia? Would you be interested in reading the Haftarah? Yes, certainly. Yes. Thank you. I'll put on my video. Okay. And I'll put up the screen here. Just one second. Okay. Squared away here. Okay. So we're going to be reading the Haftarah is from Jeremiah 46, beginning at verse 13. Okay. Let me put it up here. Okay. All right. Okay. Oh, I can't see it. <laughs> okay. 
the word that Yahuwah spoke to El Yeremiah, the prophet, now Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babel, should come and smite the land of Mitzrayim. Declare ye in Mitzrayim and publish in Migdal and publish in Noph and in Takpakeba. Say ye, stand fast and prepare, for the sword shall devour round about you. Why are your valiant men swept away? They stood not because Yahuwah did drive them. He made many to fall, yea, one fell upon another. And they said, arise and let us go again to our people, to our own people, and to the land of our nativity from the oppressing sword. They did cry there, for our king of Mitraim is but a noise. He has passed the time appointed. As I live, says the king, whose name is Yahuwah Sebaoth, surely as Tavor is among the mountains and as Kamel by the sea, so shall he come. O daughter dwelling in Mitraim, furnish yourself to go into captivity, for no shall be waste and desolate without an inhabitant. Mitraim is like a fair heifer, but destruction comes. It comes out of the north. Also her hired men are in the midst of her like fatted bullocks, for they also are turned back and are fled away together. They did not stand because the day of their calamity was upon them and the time of their visitation. The voice thereof shall go like a serpent, for they shall march with an army and come against her with axes as hewers of wood. They shall cut down her forest, says Yahuwah, though it cannot be searched because they are more than the grasshoppers and are innumerable. The daughter of Mitzrayim shall be confounded. She shall be delivered into the hand of the people of the north. Yahuwah Sebaoth, the Eloi of Yasharel, says, Behold, I will punish the multitude of No and Pharaoh and Mitraim with their Elohim and their kings, even Pharaoh and all those, all them that trust in him. And I will deliver them into the hand of those that seek their lives, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babel, and into the hand of his servants. And afterwards it shall be inhabited as in the days of old, says Yahuwah. But fear not, O my servant Yaakov, and be not dismayed, O Yasharel. For behold, I will save you from afar, and your seed from the land of their captivity. And Yaakov shall return, and be in rest and at ease, and none shall make him afraid. Fear not, O Yaakov, my servant, says Yahuwah, for I am with you. For I will make a full end of all the nations whither I have driven you, but I will not make a full end of you, but correct you in measure. Yet will I not leave you wholly unpunished. Mm, yeah, yeah. So, true. Um, so true. So Eugenia, what do you think about this passage? Hallelujah. Oh. <laughs> oh. I I I the way I I'm, I'm thinking about it is that 
what has happened has happened, but it seems like there's still something yet to happen that is being prophesied here. Uh, I agree with that. It's after Exodus. It may have happened now in our reality, but I think after Exodus, his prophet was declaring a new word and uh, about the um, the total destruction of the enemies of his people. And the total destruction is Babylon and Egypt. Babylon and Mitzrayim, right? These are yes. going to be completely destroyed. Well, is mm -hmm. Babylon completely destroyed? No. Babylon is leaning over the earth right now. Right? So I agree with you. I think this is a prophecy that is yet to come. I think that's a very good point. Thank you for that. And, and I also see Yah's um, mercy, but his fatherhood rebuking his children. So he says that even though he will make a full end of all those nations and he will not make a full end of his people, but they will not go unpunished because there are, there are consequences for idolatry. Yeah. 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 I agree with that. Okay. So let us now, since you're in a good reading mode, unless Christina, did you want to read the, the Besorah or did you have a question? Uh, I am willing to read the Bessara, uh, but I do have a question. <laughs> All right, so we both questions. All right, go ahead. Um, it's about the um, the Exodus reading. Um, it was talking about the that the children of Israel. I'm sorry, I'm using all the wrong words. So um, that Yeshua would continue forever to celebrate this the feast of Matzah. And it would should be as a mark on their right hand and on their forehead. There you go. What does that have to do with Revelation 13? Yeah, well, that's a very good point. Now, let's talk about this. Uh, how do you mark the keeping of the Pesach on your hand and on your forehead? Right. Well, you don't. Right? You don't do that. Because what it's talking about is when it's saying it's going to be like a front between your eyes, that means you're going to keep it in the front of your thought. It's going to be a thought. It's going to be up here. You know, keep this in the front of your mind, right? Have you ever had anybody tell you that? Keep this in the front of your mind. I want you to remember, keep this in the front of your mind. Don't forget to take this, to turn the burner off when you take, when you put the food on the stove, or you're going to burn it right to the pan, right? Keep this in the front of your mind, Right. And it's, this is what is being said here. Keep this in the front of your mind. It's frontlets before your eyes. Keep this in the front of your mind. And as for it being marked on your hand, this is what you're going to do. It's what you're going to do. So this is why when we talk about the mark of the beast, the mark of the beast isn't something that's necessarily on your hand and on your forehead. It's something that you have decided you're going to do, and then you act in accord with your decision. You had it in the front of your mind to do, and then you did it with your hand. That's what it, that's what the mark of the beast is talking about when the number is going to be on your forehead or on your hand. So I think that answers your question, right? Yep. So it's an invisible sort of mark. Yeah. It well, it could be, it, it, but it's not really relevant. Like for instance, when you see guys wearing the phylacteries, they want to put something on their forehead that's got the Torah written on it. They actually have a leather box in their forehead. No. How is that keeping it in the front of your mind? It's supposed to be in the front of your mind that you're you're going to be conscious of it. 
So it's going to be, that's what he's talking about. Put it in the frontlets and then act right. on your hand. That's what's being said. So in Revelation, it's it's probably more deceit. The people who get the snake bite or whatever turns out to be the mark of the beast will be further deceived. They will be thoroughly into it. That's exactly right, because they're expecting to see something. They're expecting to see 666 written on somebody's forehead or on the back of their hand, you know, the chip being on the back of their hand, not recognizing that when it becomes in the front of their mind, I'm going to get this mark. And let's talk about it. When you talk about the snake bite, there were a lot of people who had that in the front of their mind, right? That's It's like, I got to get that. I, I need to get that. I need to get that. It's what's what's going on in your mind. My top priority at the very front of my thinking is I need to get that snake bite because if I don't, I'm going to kill grandma. If I don't, I'm going to lose my job. If I don't, this, that, or the other, whatever it may be. But it's right at the front of your mind. And then it's on your hand because you went and did it. You acted on what was on the front of your mind. So this is an idea that the, the concept precedes the act and the, the concept and the act are together that lead you into taking this. Stacy, did you have something you wanted to add to that? Yes, sir. I just wanted to add real quick. I think a lot, a lot of it gets uh, messed up in the translation, the New Testament. I mean, the uh, NIV and all those when it says on. So it 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 gives you the assumption that you can wipe it off when the actual word says in your right hand and in your forehead as to what you're saying, your thoughts. Yeah, yeah. Very important point, Stacy. Mm -hmm. Very important point. And so, yeah, it is. And so the idea, and this is why, you know, when people think they, they know Revelation, oh, well, I read it in English, therefore I know it. Uh, uh, not really. You know, you shouldn't be so self-assured that the Revelation is dispositive as to what you know is in the book. You know, you, particularly when, when you're dealing with that, you really have a duty to go back and look at the underlying Greek and see what's there. And, you know, what you can do with Esau, right? You can export with Esword. Now, of course, a lot of people who've never had biblical Greek have a difficulty reading the Greek because of all the declinations of the various forms of the Greek. And you see various forms of the Greek of one word and it has many different forms depending on its tense and depending on its case, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and its generation, its declination. You need to do all those things to really fully understand it. But nonetheless, you can get a pretty good handle on it by looking at a Greek interlinear, like on Esword. Now, you guys know, I've, I think I've shown you this before, the Greek interlinear, right? Okay, well, let me let me show it to you real quick, and I'll show you. For those of you that don't have Esword, you can download it for free. You can download Esword for free. Okay, just a minute. Let me share. Let me see if I can share this. Okay, so here's eSword here. Okay, so now with eSword, uh, let me pop this up so we can see it big here in just a minute. So with eSword, now you guys can see here that in my copy of eSword, I have, uh, I've got a bunch of different stuff. I've got the Hebrew, different, different Hebrews different Hebrew Old Testament, Old Testament plus. I've got the Latin, the Russian, the Spanish. I've got the Urdu. I've got Welsh. I've got uh, Bishop's version. I've got the Sefer version of Scripture right here on Esau. You can download the 66 book form of the Sefer. 
no charge on eSort. Here's the Darby version. Here's the ESB. Here's the Geneva, a German version, a Greek. Now the Greek New Testament Byzantine. Then here is the Greek New Testament interlinear. All right. Now let me drop down here to Revelation. And we'll go here to Revelation. I guess that would be Revelation 14, maybe somewhere in here. I put the link in the chat. Uh, oh, you did. Thank you. Appreciate that. So when you when you look at this, when we see uh, Revelation 14, I'll show you the, the interlinear here just as soon as it pops up. You guys can see eSword on your screen, right? So you can get eSword. You can, this is a free download. And then once you download, and, and if you want to donate to the guys who did eSword, do so. Okay, because they, they never ask for any money. But I usually give them 50 bucks anytime I take a copy of eSword. But at any rate, um, you have this in the feature here. You can see up in the tabs, you have Bible, commentary, dictionary, tools, download, options, window, etc. The download function here allows you to download Bibles, commentaries, dictionaries, devotionals, graphics, and reference books. You can download all of that stuff. And, you know, if you've got the computer that can handle it, download all that stuff. Download the stuff you like. And then these columns all appear. Now, in the Greek interlinear, when we look here, we can see, uh, let's take a look at this passage right here about the 144,000. Now, what you're going to see is you're going to see the Strong's word down here. Let me let me, uh, let me get a, a little annotation going here. We, we'll use uh, blue since I don't want to offend anybody with pink like I did last time. But if you look here, you'll see, okay, Here's the word kai. This is going to be the Strong's word. The word actually appears in the text is here. And so this is why you're going to see the difference when you get to, for instance, look at the next very next word. You see that the word here is oida, which means to see. But that's not what appears here. The actual word that appears is idon. Now, when we look at this, we pull up the Strong's number here you see that it gives you a form of the word, but this is not what you're actually seeing here. You're seeing idon, but here it's it's spelled just ido, because the idon is a declination. It's a declination form of the word. It's the same word, but it's just in a different declination. And then you can see that they're going to give you these ideas of what's being said, and to see, and lo, the lambkin, to stand, uh, twice and here you see you see a uh, two different you see this idea of uh estos and then you see estikos right and in this case they're saying it's estime because it's got it has a uh a breather on top of the on top of you don't see it there but you can see the little double dash on top of the iota that little double dash on top of the iota it means that it has a it has a breather so let me let me see if i can show you what i'm talking about we're talking about this word here. And you see the iota looks like this, and then it's got this little squiggly over the top. That means that's a breather. That means it's not just pronounced E, but rather he. It's got a ha pronounced to it, right? And so anyway, so the this is the word that you're going to get in the Strong's, but this is the word that actually appears in the text. So you have to be able to try to distinguish here the 
various declinations of the Greek term to be able to understand what's being said. All right. And we can see here that uh, you can use this interlinear as a great guide to give yourself some idea of what's being said on any particular verse. If you have a, a question about a verse, right? Um, see, and so this says, like, to give you to give you an idea. So here's autos, right? In this case, this is autou, autou, uh, he, she, or it, right? And as we go through, then here's the number, arithmos, arithmos, even though the word that's going to give you in Strong's is arithmon, but it's arithmos. And it's the same number you see in Revelation 13, 18, the arithmos, the number. And it's very interesting about arithmos because arithmos is a number, as in reckoned, a calculated number. It's a calculated number, okay? And he, so to, the better way to put this in English is, and he or she or they had a calculated number, which was 144,000. You see? And so now all of a sudden you begin to see, as soon as you start looking at the interlinear, you're going to see stuff that's going to give you a different concept than what you're normally going to see. And so for those people who want to get myopic about a particular English word, this is where I really get frustrated with a lot of people who browbeat me over doctrine that they hold, predicated exclusively on the English language. If you're going to browbeat me over something, browbeat me over what the Hebrew says or what the Greek says, not what the English says. I don't want somebody to come to me and says, well, you know, I, I'm going to take a crescent wrench to that English word, north, until we get the, every last drop out of it, when it may not mean that, okay? Okay, Raina, hey, did you have a question, Raina? Okay. Sure. No, not a question, I'll, I'll make a comment later. Okay, okay, Christine, why don't we get a reading from you of the Besserah passage? I'll put it up here on the screen for us. Okay, this is going to be from Luke, Chapter 7, verses 1 through 50. Now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum, and a certain centurion servant who was dear to, unto him was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Yahusha, he sent unto him the elders of the Ahudim, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Yahusha, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom we should do this, for he loves our nation and he has built us a synagogue. Then Yahusha went with them, and when he was now far, not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Adonai, trouble not yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto you, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Yahusha heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned him about, and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Yasharel. 
And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. And it came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Navith. And many of his tal Taldamim went with him, and many people. Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and many people of the city was with her. And when Adonai saw her, he had compassion on her and said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the coffin, and they that bore him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say unto you, Arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak. And he delivered him to his mother. And there came a fear on all, and they glorified Elohim, saying that a great prophet is risen up among us, and that Elohim has visited his people. And this rumor of him went forth throughout all Yahud, and throughout all the region round about. And the Talmudim of Yahukanon showed him of all these things. And Yahukanon, calling unto him two of his Talmudim, sent them to Yahusha, saying, Are you he that should come, or look we for another? When the men were come unto him, they said, Yahukhanon the baptizer has sent us unto you, saying, Are you he that should come, or look we for another? And in that same hour he cured many of their infirmities and plagues, and of evil ruachot, and unto many that were blind he gave sight. Then Yahusha answering said unto them, Go your way, and tell Yahukhanon what things ye have seen and heard at how that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the Basura is preached. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. And when the messengers of Yahu Kanon were departed, he began to speak unto the people concerning Yahu Kanon. What went ye out into the wilderness for to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went ye out for to see, a man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they which are gorgeously apparelled and live delicately are in king's courts. But what, ye went, what went ye out for to see, a prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and much more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, which shall prepare your way before you. For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than Yahu Kanon the baptizer, but he that is least in the kingdom of Elohim is greater than he. And all the people that heard him and the publicans Elohim justified being baptized with the baptism of Yahu Kanon. But the parashim and lawyers rejected the counsel of Elohim against themselves, being not baptized of him. And Adonai said, Whereunto then shall I liken the men of this nation? And to what are they like? They are like unto children sitting in the marketplace and calling one to another and saying, We have piped unto you, and you have not danced. We have mourned to you, and you have not wept. For you, Yahu Kanon the baptizer, came neither drink, eating bread nor drinking wine, and ye say, He has a devil. The son of Adam is come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, 
a friend of publicans and sinners, but wisdom is justified of all her children. And one of the parashim desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the parashim's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Yahusha sat to eat in the parashim's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the parashi which had bidden him saw it, he spoke within himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that touches him, for she is a sinner. And Yahusha answering said unto him, Shimon, I have somewhat to say unto you. And he said, Rabbi, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Shimon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, You have rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Shimon, See this woman? I entered into your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. You gave me no kiss. But this woman, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil you did not anoint. But this woman has anointed my feet with ointment. And wherefore I say unto you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And he said unto her, your sins are forgiven. And they that sat to eat with him began to say within themselves, who is this that forgives sins also? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Excellent. Excellent. Such great reading this particular passage and this reading i think is is uh you know it's i think it's one of the most wonderful sections of the gospel i can't get into a full teaching on it other than to say that we have some differences in the gospels in terms of this particular narrative we see in mark this is described at a different place and in matthew it's described at a different place and uh, in some, in one case, it's you know spike and art, and it's another ointment in another place. So, did it happen more than once? And it looks like it did, and it looks like it happened in more than one place. And so we have. So the question is, who is this? Now we have him saying, "See this woman? She's a sinner, right? How you know you don't know who this woman is that's wiping your feet? She's a sinner." Now there's a guess as to who it is, but it's a guess. Right? It's a guess as to who it is. But we do know that uh, Mashiach is looking at this and saying, this narrative is going to be about her forever and ever. And I, I suppose the, the, the true moral of the story is he who has been forgiven much loves much. And that is really, I think, the bottom line to the entirety of the narrative. And we can also see that uh, you know, and this is, again, he's working with a Pharisee here in this case, right? And, but, you know, the whole story of this idea of the Pharisees holding themselves out as we're much, we're far superior to these other guys. 
and you know and not recognizing you know it's like the the publican and the pharisee they're standing there one the pharisee's prayer is thank you for not making me like that guy you know i fast twice on the sabbath i do this i do the other thing thank thank you for making me holy and righteous and certain to be in heaven and that i'm not that guy over there and the guy over there is a sinner saying, you know, forgive me, y'all, for being a sinner. And Mashiach says, that guy is the one that's going to see heaven. Not the guy over here sitting here so assured of his own salvation because he fasted twice on the Sabbath or whatever the situation is, whatever it may be, right? It's a very clear instruction for us, I think. And, you know, someone was, uh, one of our friends was telling my wife yesterday that, she had a friend of hers that was in one of these mega churches and they were all standing up with their hands up and they were praising and singing worship and all this other stuff. And everybody was in the spirit and all this. And she closed her eyes and she heard the words of Yah. And Yah said, okay, close your eyes again. And she closed her eyes and she said, okay, now open your eyes and turn around and look. And she turned around and looked and she saw everybody in this mega church as dead trees. They were all dead trees. And Yah said, they think they know me, but they know nothing of me. They're all dead trees. And you have people who have been convinced by the protocols, by the traditions, by the mechanisms, by the deeds of the church, that if you stand up and you lift your hands in praise and you know the words to the song, that suddenly you know Yah, and suddenly you know his teaching, and suddenly you're in relationship with him because you're having a feel-good experience about singing a song. And what this guy was, what Yah was telling this person is, they are far from me. They don't know me at all. They don't know me at all. So it becomes a, a, a really kind of a, a key point for all of us to spend time with your relationship with Yah get to know him. Don't be a dead tree. Don't be a dead tree. Okay. Raina, did you have a, a comment there? Yes, about uh, oh, when was it? Thursday that uh, with um, eating oil and honey? Yeah, on Wednesday. Okay. Tuesday. Um, I saw this uh, thing on, on YouTube that it said that they... Uh, AI has a picture of what the J-man, that's what they call it, looks like. Hmm. They had it, right? What he's supposed to look like. That right. goes to what you were saying about the deceit that's coming on to those that continue to follow Esau. They're going to follow AI. Yeah, they are. Yeah. And the deception of AI is just enormous. I mean, it, the deception is enormous. I mean, what, what the AI is capable of doing right now is incredible. By the end of the year, it's going to be even that much more enormous. And of course, you know, uh, John Hallam said that already the banking system is completely overtaken by AI. They have yielded. The bankers have yielded all of the decision-making of the banks 
to their AI systems. It's no longer coming out of their board of directors. It's coming out of their AI. And the AI is pushing us towards a social credit score that's going to be predicated on your environmental score, your social score, and your governmental score. How much you, if you speak any negative words concerning the government, if you speak any negative words concerning the social structure, if you dissent, if you have any dissenting opinion whatsoever compared to what the norm is, or if you're opposed to the climate change rhetoric, that is going to force your social credit score downward and to the point that you're not going to be able to buy or sell. I believe that they started when the... Uh... Oh, you bet. Yep. There it is. With the P with the PPP loans. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. They and, turned it over. And you know, you, you we saw a radical paradigmatic shift. I hate to use that term, but I have to use it here. But we saw a radical paradigmatic shift in all of society worldwide after March of 2021. Everything changed. Everything changed. You know, airlines stopped flying their regular routes. Restaurants closed down. Uh, camaraderie, the kind of speech that was given in the public square. Uh, there was a new division. Those who were who conformed and insisted you conformed and those who didn't conform. All of a sudden, there was a new division. Those in a mask, those out of a mask, right? And so here we had it. And so there's been a major shift, major climactic change. And as a result, we're, it, it's not going back. We haven't returned. This thing that happened in March of 2021 brought on a new, uh, a new paradigm. And by the time we get here to April of 2024, we will have been three years into it. But when we get to Tabernacles in 2024, we will have completed seven years from 2017 and the sign of his coming on August 23rd, 2017. What follows after that will be a good question. Will it be three and a half years of tribulation? Will it be, you know, what we don't know, but you can see that we had this sign on September 23rd, 2017. The sign really wasn't realized until October the 1st. Three and a half years later, 1260 days later, we get to the announcement of the lockdown in March of 2021. We move to three and a half years later after that will be Sukkot in 2024. So, you know, if you look at the, this being the period of Revelation 12, that this was the Revelation 12 period, well, 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 we have some very interesting things happening, do we not? We have some very interesting things happening. So Satan warred in heaven from September, October 1st, 2017 until March of 2021. And Satan came to make war on earth in March of 2021 and has been exacting the beast system ever since. And look at the difference in the world since that arrival. Look at the difference. Everything changed. Everything changed. And it has not returned to normal. And we're seeing that those who play in the hands of Satan are setting themselves up for what looks like digital security, but ultimately is going to be complete destruction. Rod Edwards. Hey, Stephen. Uh, just a quick question about the Exodus. You know, I can't help but think, 
we talk about the people in bondage. So what did bondage mean? Because it said when they left, they left with their herds, their camels, their cattle, their flocks, their gold, their silver. How much in bondage is that? You know, <laughs> Right, right. That's a good question. Well, you know, the, when you talk about bondage, that's a direct reference to bond servanthood. And so they were in bondage in this respect. They could have cattle and herds and all the rest of this stuff, but their daily task was to build bricks. And so they had a debt that they had to pay off that was not possible to pay off because they were owned. They were bond servants. So they weren't free to leave. They probably had their ears pierced and they were under direct supervision of their owners who controlled them, not as slaves, but as bond servants, as bond servants, you know, they, they owed their life to the company's store, you know, and this was the situation that they were completely locked in to a contract, if you will, that would not allow them to escape. So even though, I mean, like for instance, you can have, you can be working full time, Rod, and still have chickens. You could still have goats, you could still have sheep and still be, you're still working full time, even though you have these herds. Now, the gold and silver, they took off the Egyptians. So they didn't get that gold. They didn't have that gold and silver. They had herds, but they didn't have the gold and silver. They took that off the Egyptians. Every person borrowed from their neighbor, quote unquote, and they spoiled the Egyptians. So uh, they were in bond servanthood, and they probably did not have the wealth. Even though they had the animals, they did not have the wealth that the Egyptians had. And uh, so, uh, but you're right. And, and it was not slavery per se in terms of being owned as chattel property but rather the, the term used is bondage and that means they were under a bond contract controlled by someone else and remember that the torah says a bond servant has no right to his own family if the, if the master brought him a woman to be his wife the master owns the wife and all the kids that's how that's how it reads in the torah and that was probably a rule that was respected in egypt so for them to leave with their children and all and their wives and so on, they broke that whole bond servanthood. The, the entirety of the contract and everything about it was destroyed. But yeah, I mean, it's a very good point, right? How'd they get that wealthy? It must have been a pretty liberal bond servanthood, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think the Egyptians, I, don't, I don't think the Egyptians cared what you did on the side, just make sure you get the bricks done, right? You have to get a good side hustle. Yeah, yeah, side hustle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. They didn't come in as servants, so with Joseph. What's that? They didn't come in as servants with Joseph. I mean, that happened a lot later. Yeah, they did not. That happened later on when when the Pharaoh no longer remembered Joseph. Right, Seti the first. Okay, Angelo, did you have something for us, your brother? Yeah, I had a question, but uh, just a quick comment when we were referring to AI. Um, as of recent, there's been many of those who are involved in creation of it, so to speak, who are alarmed by the fact that it's taken on a life of its own. Yeah. And I look at it in Revelation where you, I mean, the Kizion, uh, where it's basically referring to that this image would receive breath. It comes to life like spirit and habitation. You know, you it's kind of really saying that, you know, in a lot of direct ways. So just a, just a thought on that. Um, today's last reading in uh, Lucas, 
Verse 28, I would like your feedback on the verse, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than Yehuchanan, the baptizer, but he that is least in the kingdom of Elohim is greater than he. Now, I have a thought on that, but I'm just curious what your, what your take is on that. Well, I mean, that's a good question. I really don't have a take on that, uh, Angela. I'm interested in hearing what you think about that. Um, in the context of when he's referring to in the early stages of his um, ministry, if you will, he says he's a friend of the bridegroom, referring in that context. And this possibly it says, but the, he who has the bride, thinking of it in terms of greater, greater things will the bride accomplish in the kingdom. In other words, this something along that line is kind of what, what I'm seeing. Um, what he's saying here is that he's a great prophet here on earth, but he's. Oh, that's that was my thought. That was my thought. When you see the transfiguration, you see Moses and Elijah. So if you're looking at this from your first prophet to last prophet, if you will. And then he now he says he speaks by means of the sun. So you can see this in this transfiguration. And you see three who are being invited in to who are there present. Peter. Uh, Yaakov and. I'm sorry, my brain's going crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so then you see Yeshua, Yahushua rather, and he is glorified in this in his fullness, if you will. And so he's saying these ones here will not die until they see the kingdom. So you're seeing this glory of this. And so it's just curious, it's a curiosity to me that so many people refer to themselves as kings and priests, but not everybody's gonna be king. You know, they're subjects. It's that kind of a thing. You know, this kingdom is a kingdom. And in order to have a kingdom, then there's a representation of co-rulers, if you will, and subjects of the kingdom. And then there's a lot being referred there that we haven't, you know, we're going to know in detail. But this is curious. It's a curiosity to me because he's the last prophet, if you will. And he comes. It's interesting that he would be from Levi, right? And then this is transference over to Melchizedek. So it's like all of that going on there, but there's something going on there because this man, to, to say no greater person born from woman, that's a powerful statement. But yet in the kingdom, the one who is least in this will be greater. That could possibly be that, I don't know, the, the glorification or something. You know, you know what I mean? Something along that line. Those who are in the kingdom of heaven are glorified above the human flesh born from a woman on earth. Right. It's being said there. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, it's a difficult passage. And I'm glad we explored it because it is, you know, it's again, it's one of those things. What's he talking about? Right. And uh, is he just slamming John? He's not. I mean, he's saying, look, he, he's a born women of those who are born from women. Yeah, he's great. But in the kingdom of heaven, uh, no, he's not. He's just a human being on earth. Right. Yeah. Question there, brother. Uh, I was just connecting that with chosen of Yah. The, you know, his hundred and forty-four thousand, if you will. The chosen will be what Angelo was talking about. That's all I wanted to say. That. Yeah, yeah, that's also possible too. That the hundred and forty-four thousand are going to be a, uh, you know, a separate class, uh, you know, unto those in heaven. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay.
All right, guys. Well, we're going to wrap it up now. We're going to call it a Shabbat day. And thank all you guys for being present today. We oh, have- please, please. Just one last thing. It just hit me. When you were reading in this Torah today, it's perfect. It's Remember when it was saying that the firstborn, now it's saying the firstborn will be mine. And it's always about the chosen. And it's always about that they're a living sacrifice. And they're there to serve. I mean, think about who Yosha is to us. He's our king. He's everything. But at the same time, what is he doing? Oh, he's serving us. We're the benefactors. So the subjects of the kingdom are benefactors. So it's just a thought on that. That it could be very possibly a separate class, if you will. Not class division like we think of. But, you know, these chosen out. And then there's this great multitude from every single nation just praising in the temple, which is literally, you know, I mean, I don't know how it goes, but it just seems like that, you know. There's separate classes of angels. You know, and we do see kind of a class distinction between the 144,000 and the, you know, uh, the group without number underneath the altar, right? In the same in the same chapter in in Chazon, you see that that representation made. So there are different classes, you know, and uh, but, you know, but I, I do think in this case, when we're talking about John, we're talking about him in the flesh as a prophet in the flesh on earth, as great as he may be. He's really nothing in the kingdom of heaven because, you know, the glorified body and everything else that is in the kingdom of heaven is a completely different world. And I think that's what yet what, what Yash is trying to make here, the point he's trying to make. Just one thing I, I'd like to add to this is where he talks about the kingdom of heaven is likened unto ten virgins, five are wise and five are foolish. Yeah. The five wise, when, when the call is made, and Yahusha is returning. The five wise go out to meet him, and the five foolish go out to meet him. But the five foolish don't have oil in their vessels to keep the light on. So while they are going back into the world to get oil that they should have had, the five wise are taken up. And then they come back and and say, Yahusha, Yahusha, come, take us. And he goes, I don't know you. Yeah, the doors are closed to the yeah. weeping and gnashing, right? Yeah. 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 And, and again, yeah, you're right. There is, again, we see that division, right? It's a similar division. Okay. So, like, and I understand that division is the five wise go up and become the bride of Yahusha, and the five foolish will go on through great tribulation and become kings in the new earth. That's how I see it. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Well, guys, look, we are going to wrap it up here today. And I want to thank everybody for here and being a wonderful group. Thank you guys for being this family. And let us carry on this week with the spirit of love for one another love and forgiveness and kindness and let's try to put the anger away this week right we had some good discussion about anger management this week let's try to put the anger away and and keep the anger from letting us lie and uh, we'll, we'll follow in good accord in good step with what yah has taught us okay brothers and sisters we will see you next week for the shabbat meeting and unless we see you earlier in class or at some of the other videos okay
All right. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Good to see my brother Ezra. Shabbat shalom, all of you. Hallelujah. I like it. Shabbat shalom, Ezra. Shabbat shalom, Meshpacha. Shabbat shalom.